all the great powers of six great gods and heroes have been gathered together and placed in the hands of boy broadcaster Billy Batson. When he pronounces the name of the ancient Egyptian wizard Shazam, he becomes, in a blinding flash of lightning, Captain Marvel, the world's mightiest mortal. Then, when evil is defeated, Captain Marvel repeats the word and changes back to Billy. So amazing and sudden is the change that most people never realize what has happened. This is Comic Geek Speak, episode 1737, spotlight on Shazam! In the Bronze Age. Part One! I'm Adam Murdo. I'm Ian Levenstein. And I'm Chris Eberle. Ah, oh, Murd, what an intro. That was legendary. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. It's so it's patterned well, it's it's patterned on your intros for your various spotlight episodes. I'm just Which I always have you read, sir, because you have the most sonorous voice. <laughs> yeah, let's as far as I'm concerned, it's shamelessly derivative. So there. <laughs> shamelessly derivative of the true Sultan of Spotlights, Christopher. <laughs> well, I have, I'm working on one, but right now we're uh, basking in the one you just repaired. Let me tell the audience, I'm looking at your notes. Fantastic detail, Murd. Well, thank you, Chris. It's just be fun. And trying to just provide enough detail to be interesting without disappearing down a rabbit's hole of uh, hyper detail. I, I, I think you throw that needle. I don't think we, we need to make this, you know, uh, turgid. Oh, so. yeah. I'm, I'm bound and determined, guys, <laughs> to get through this era of Captain Marvel history in a single episode. And I think we're going to succeed, too, because there's like a fraction of the material to get through as uh, for the true. era of 1973 to 1985, which is what we'll be covering, as compared to like 1940 to 1954, which took us four episodes. Well, I, I got to <laughs> tell you, there's something fitting about this ending uh, a year after my birth, uh, considering that this is my first uh, my first spotlight to be a part of here on Comic Geek Speak. So slightly after the age of Levenstein, this uh, this this spotlight <laughs> on the Bronze Age ends, and I approve of that. The yes. age of Levenstein. <laughs> that's got Ian. a heck of a ring to it. Yes. Oh, yeah. I got, I, got, I got a little applaud you for this milestone, too. Your first yes. spotlight episode is a CGSer. Yep. And uh, I, I, am, I am happy to be, as I affectionately called it in the pre-show, the pants seat, where I'll be uh, <laughs> asking the questions and, uh, and interjecting with random comments here or there, as I am not at all familiar with anything that we're discussing on this episode, but I kind of like it that way. Oh, Ian, I'm right there with you. And this is Murd's wheelhouse, and I also have a lot of questions looking forward to posing. Preserving the mystery here. It's like we're all opening an ancient Egyptian temple together. <laughs> Exploring its wonders. Although, hopefully it'll be a better movie than The Scorpion King. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Although, I'm pretty sure that uh, the, the Black Adam movie will eventually be a better Dwayne Johnson movie than The Scorpion King was. Too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No question about it. <laughs> All right, so and uh, I appreciate you guys occupying the pants seat because, uh, as we were saying before we began recording here, pants was always one to downplay the importance of what he tended to do in episodes like this. Vitally, but important. For, Vitally important. Yep. For the main lector, as Chris knows, as he's been in that position many, many a time, it's very, very helpful 
when uh, you know his castmates uh, chime in uh, to volunteer information or to ask questions. So for the love of all the elders, guys, if at any point during this ca- my uh, in- ensuing uh, uh, lengthy ramble, uh, you you guys have uh, pieces of information you want to interject or uh, some piece of information you want to try to tease out of my uh, beleaguered brain, please do speak up. Honored, my friend. Sounds good to me, sir. And we should remind the listeners that there's a whole series of Shazam spotlights uh, that you can uh, go back to, into our archives for. Mer did a series on the Golden Age and the Silver Age. Yep. So. And, uh, well, that, technically, it was the Atomic Age. The Atomic Age. I'm sorry. You're sorry. Because yeah, yeah, he, was, he wasn't really in the Silver Age. So, Yes, as, as we will see in a moment. I do have yeah. a couple of notes about what was happening to Captain Marvel while he was in hibernation. Well, well, not well to him, around him, adjacent to him, you know, stuff like that. While he was and, and the Marvel family were in hibernation during the sixties. Well, we'll get some stuff about that. Um, uh, let, let me begin by uh, giving credit where credit is due. A lot of uh, the, the 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 bits of information, especially of a background nature, that I'll be uh, revealing in this episode uh, comes from an article in issue number ninety three of Back Issue Magazine, published by oh. uh, Tomorrow's Publishing. Uh, that was the All Captains issue, published in uh, twenty sixteen. Uh, the article is by a fan scholar named John Pierce, and it's the cover story Shazam in the Bronze Age, under a cover by Dave Cockrum. I remember that issue fondly. Yep. So thanks to Mister. Yep. There's lots of interesting Captain stuff, including that other Captain Marvel, <laughs> who's actually allowed to use the name. Uh, so yes, an excellent issue in a series, a magazine that uh, provides nothing but excellent issues. Oh, amen to that. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll, I have to shout it out now. We'll, we'll give context later. Split. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> How to do that? Nice. Yes, yes. Thank you, Chris. That was mm-hmm. that was necessary. And I, I want to point out that uh, so it's uh, episode fifteen thirty eight for Shazam and the Golden Age Part One. Uh, 1540 for Shazam and the Golden Age Part 2. And then uh, we go to uh, uh, scrolling up, scrolling up, scrolling up. Uh, Spotlight on Shazam and the Golden Age Part 3 is 1646. And the Atomic Age, episode 1699. Yes. That's a lot of hours of listening there, folks. But, you know, to be fair, there were a lot of Captain Marvel stories published in the 40s and 50s. Yes, indeed. Yep, we'll we'll exercise a little more brevity here uh, in this episode and in the one or ones that will follow. But uh, per uh, spotlight tradition, as again established by Professor Eberly, um, let, let's begin here by uh, sharing whatever thoughts and impressions we may have about uh, this period of uh, Shazam history. Um, and for me, um, my for, when I think of uh, Captain Marvel in the 70s, I think of the random issues of the Shazam series published by DC uh, that I saw uh, scattered around various yard sales, garage sales, and flea markets that I used to attend with my dad, who's uh, kind of a veteran pack rat and uh, haunts all kinds of estate sales and flea markets and things, uh, looking for his own kind of treasures. Uh, when I started collecting comics in the early 90s, I started going with him, and I saw some issues of Shazam, and I saw that uh, red suit with a yellow lightning bolt on it, and uh, thinking to my, I wasn't, it wasn't very clear on who the original Captain Marvel was at that point. Uh, I hadn't started reading Jerry Ordway's Power of Shazam series yet, about which he, we will hear a lot more in a future Spotlight on Shazam episode, believe you me. Um <laughs> But uh, just looking at those 70s comics, uh, they looked like um, fairly simple, wholesome, kid-friendly comics entertainment. And having read all of them now, I find that I was not far wrong with that assumption. Um, And I can throw into that now, though, having read uh, the other half of the Bronze Bronze Age for Captain Marvel after the Shazam 
title series uh, petered out and was replaced by a backup series in World's Finest Comics. I can also say that the 70s... Uh, we're kind of a time when Captain Marvel grew up a little bit uh, under the pen of uh, writer E. Nelson Bridwell and um, the uh, the artwork of uh, fan favorite Don Newton. Um, we'll, we'll hear a little more about him as the, the episode progresses, too. But uh, this, it was Captain Marvel's clash with uh, 1970s uh, then-contemporary uh, sensibilities. And uh, he walked away from that collision with only one or two minor scratches. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd seen a couple of random images from that uh, Bridwell and Newton backup run in the world's finest during the early days of the internet. I think one of my very first uh, web browsing sessions uh, involved me searching for stuff about Captain Marvel, having hmm. by then started to read The Power of Shazam, and I saw a couple of uh, Don Newton's panels, and I thought, wow, okay, that's that's what uh, the slightly more mature 70s Captain Marvel looked like. And so now I'm, I'm, I'm just happy to have become fully acquainted, um, like uh, on a crippling level of detail uh, with all of this stuff, and I'm I'm very pleased to be sharing my findings with everyone in this episode. All right, so how about you guys? Any uh, uh, initial thoughts about uh, Captain Marvel of the 70s? Ian, go ahead. Uh, well, uh, this uh, Captain Marvel is a character that in many ways is a blind spot to me. Uh, while I was you know, familiar with him through uh, his appearances specifically in, you know, say, like much, much later on in, in uh, you know, Jeff Johns' JSA and stuff like that, um, I knew that the character existed and I knew that he had a long storied history, a tumultuous one at that in the world of comic books, but I really didn't know much about, uh, you know, where that history led him, nor the issues itself. And uh, through through the use of your, you know, uh, meticulous note-taking, Murd, I was able to read a couple of issues from that era, and and I, I, I appreciate the fact that uh, in some ways, the Bronze Age feels very, uh, you know, golden. Uh, just, just, just in the fact that it's, it, it really, it still has a, uh, at least a personality to it, to me, that I equate more with the golden age of comics, um, whether, whether it be, uh, you know, in campiness or whether it just be in dialogue choices or in style, um, I gathered that it, it may have just been that, that, you know, from what I read it was, you know, mainly the world's finest stuff, um, definitely had that appeal and personality to it. Um, but then again, when I think of Shazam, I think of, you know, gee whiz and, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> so it, it very much plays with that, with that character and personality. Um, I'll also say that, um, and I mean, we'll get to it more later when you actually touch on it, Murd, but, uh, now that I've read at least a little bit of All-Star Squadron, I think I'm going to have to read all of All-Star Squadron because that 100%, uh, gels with my with my style and personality when it comes to reading comics. I, I adored what I read there, specifically mm. with uh, with Captain Marvel included in it, and I'm going to have to go back and read more of it. It, it, oh. it very much uh, uh, you know, tickled my fancy, to say the least. Mm. Well, I tickled his fancy? You. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, well, let me just uh, hand you an extra feather with which to tickle that fancy, <laughs> because and I know... Pants would agree, too, if he were here, because he and I both love All-Star Squadron. Yeah. That is the first ongoing series uh, of which I collected a complete run in back issues yep. when I started collecting. And it, it was well worth the hunt, because I've, I've got all, like, 60-some issues and all the annuals. It's just it's great uh, uh, Golden Age ret retcon storytelling, as, as, as only Roy Thomas and his various collaborators can do it. And uh, it's, it, it visits uh, a lot of... Uh, 
golden age favorites that might otherwise have been forgotten. Um, the, the freedom fighters got new life there after their own book had been canceled back mm-hmm. in the 70s. You, you, you're in for a real treat if you decide to pursue this, Ian. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And, and most most of it, if not all of it, is on the DC Universe app. So it's going to be uh, easy for me to not pay any extra money to read it. <laughs> Better still. All right, gentlemen. Uh, for me, so similar to Ian, uh, Captain Marvel slash Shazam, uh, and I'll borrow his his uh, his, his term, a, a blind spot, especially uh, when I was growing up. Uh, so my only exposure to the character in the seventies was the television show, uh, which was on with ISIS, uh, which I would watch as a little, very little boy. Um, Either in the 70s or later on in the uh, – I think it may have been in reruns even into the 80s. I have dim memories of, of watching that show, both both of them, and I had no idea that he was even originally called Catmore. All I knew was, oh, this is Shazam. And that that was the the, 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 the image I had of the character for quite a few years until I started to read uh, you know, more comics and more DC comics and, and start to read more about comic book history in particular. And then I started to appreciate how important this character is. And you know what a big deal this his his return was in in the Bronze Age after a, a very fallow period. I'm glad you brought up uh, the Shazam TV series, Chris, because I'm I'm pretty sure that's going to be uh, for for a lot of those listening the, their first exposure to the 70s yeah. iteration <laughs> of Captain Marvel as well. Yeah. How about you, Ian? Have you ever seen any episodes of uh, that series featuring TV's Michael Gray? <laughs> You know, uh, if I have, it was very much in passing. I, uh, I I don't think it ever really played in uh, you know in syndication here in New York. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think if it ever really you know even aired on say like WPIX back in the day. Um, but I I do remember there being an animated version of Shazam that I that I watched at some point. Um, uh. And I don't know whether or not it was it was you know just like uh, shorts or Hanna Barbera esque stuff, but I have vague recollection of that. Mm. Um, that that I that I remember a lot more than a than a live action version. Mm. Um, Ian, when we get to the end of this uh, little Bronze Age mini marathon, I will be able to give you some more details about that show you remember. Excellent. Yeah. As for myself uh, and the, the the Michael Gray Jackson Bostwick Shazam, I've I've seen only like a couple of snippets of a couple episodes myself. Um, maybe about ten years ago or so, uh, the TV Land Network used to run reruns as part of their late night uh, Friday night kitchen K I T S C H E N block, <laughs> along with some seventies Sid Marty Croft shows, which I was more interested in, honestly. Um, but yeah, it, I, I quickly deduced that it uh, didn't have very much to do with the comic book version of the character, and uh, it, it kind of didn't hold my interest, I have to say. But I know it's important to a number of people as uh, their their intro to the original Captain Marvel, so I'm certainly not going to badmouth it. All right, shall we start taking a look at uh, uh, the opening of the Bronze Age for Captain Marvel? My friend, buy or leave. Let us begin. Oh. All right. Well, first of all, I've headed my notes here with a section entitled While They Were Sleeping, because as we mentioned at uh, the end of our uh, last Spotlight episode of Captain uh, Shazam in the Atomic Age, uh, 1954, at the very beginning of 1954, uh, was the end of uh, the Marvel family's first run in comics. Uh, That was when Fawcett uh, settled out of court with DC, ending their decade-long court battle about uh, the alleged similarity of Captain Marvel to Superman, and they agreed that they would uh, stop publishing any and all comics featuring the Marvel family. Uh, They would retain the rights to the characters, they just wouldn't use them to publish comics featuring them. And uh, so that was the end of the Marvel family in comics, and pretty soon after that, Fawcett Publishing just got out of comics altogether. So, 
Uh, that began a period of dormancy that uh, would turn out to last uh, 19 years, almost to the month, from 1954 to, to the beginning of 1973. Now, during that time, a couple of uh, developments happened that uh, touch upon the Marvel family. Um, there was a point in the mid-50s, probably almost immediately after Captain Marvel and his supporting cast were put into mothballs, uh, when a fellow named Carmen Infantino pretty important figure in the history of DC Comics, uh, was shopping around uh, a newspaper strip that he couldn't get anybody to touch because it was the mid-50s, the atomic age, and superheroes, with a few signal exceptions, uh, were considered uh, non-viable. Nobody wanted a superhero strip. Mm. But this strip that he had put together was going to be called Captain Whiz and the Colors <laughs> of Evil. Okay. And <laughs> Yeah, okay is right. That's probably what a lot of the people he pitched this thing to said, too. <laughs> Uh, but apparently, I don't know much about uh, the Captain Wiz pitch. Uh, even Infantino himself was a little fuzzy on the details. This was not a period of his personal career history that he brought up very much until 2004 uh, when he decided to make it a legal issue. Uh, but uh, apparently, uh, this character was kind of loosely inspired by the original Captain Marvel. Uh, and probably the Colors of Evil would have been loosely inspired by the Seven Deadly Enemies of Man. Um, but... Uh, he couldn't get anybody to bite on it, so eventually uh, he uh, he was talking to Julie Schwartz and uh, Julie, who was a, you know a legendary editor at DC Comics, and he tapped Infantino, who had done a couple of uh, Golden Age Flash stories, to do the Silver Age revival of the Flash with a Barry Allen character, and Infantino kind of used a, a very similar visual design to what he had for this Captain Wiz character of his uh, for the Barry Allen costume. So there you are. This Captain Wiz is kind of like the missing link between the Golden Age Captain Marvel and the Silver Age Flash, thanks to Infantino. So in a way, uh, uh, Captain Marvel's DNA did surface as, as a very important part of the early Silver Age of comics, even though the good Captain himself never made an appearance during the Silver Age. They really or did he? They really <laughs> pissed away an opportunity uh, by not publishing Captain Wiz. Oh my god, Ian. <laughs> it took me a few too many seconds to understand what you were doing there, Ian. So, Ian Ian's so intoxicated that he's now on a spotlight episode, he's letting it all rush to his head. Oh, yes. You got an outburst like that. You, you deserve a better audience than we, Ian. Uh, Almost as much as you deserve better writers. Yes. <laughs> Both are true. Uh, yeah. Oh, and one more little note about uh, Captain Wiz. I mentioned 2004. That was the year that Infantino sued DC. Uh, for like ownership and creator royalties for Barry Allen and a lot of his supporting cast in Rogues Gallery because he claimed you know, that's what he brought up the Captain Wiz and the Colors of Evil thing because he said Barry Allen was just a modified version of his Captain Wiz and the Colors of Evil were then modified into the Rogues Gallery. Like he claimed the purple guy from the Colors of Evil became Gorilla Grodd. I'm, guessing, it, I'm guessing he didn't win that one. He did not, actually. Oh. it was <laughs> the, the, the suit was dismissed within a year. Yeah. But anyway... There's Captain Wiz for you. That's uh, a little. So we nearly got something like a Captain Marvel character about 15 years before we actually did. Um, and then um, now when, when Fawcett shut down public uh, publication, um, when, when they stopped publishing comics, um, most of their staff were let go. Some of them got work elsewhere in the Fawcett magazine empire. Uh, but the comics professionals are pretty much out in the cold. Some of them ended up ironically working for DC. One of them was an artist named uh, Kurt Schaffenberger. And uh, I, I, I call out now to uh, Eric Nolan Wethington to let me know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, <laughs> it, often that, uh, that, that particle Schaffen is uh, uh, anglicized to Schaefer or Schaefen in English. But uh, since uh, 
Uh, Mr. Schaffenberger is a first-generation German immigrant. He probably might have retained something <laughs> closer to the original German pronunciation. So I'm going to go with Schaffenberger for the rest of this episode. So, Eric, please let me know if I'm right to do that. But uh, Bert, even was, if you're wrong, that was such an authoritative explanation of why you're going with Schaffenberger that – Works for me. <laughs> well, you know, I'm living in a heavily German part of the country here, of course, yeah. so it's kind of incumbent I, I, on me to get stuff like this right. As a Levenstein who has many a time been a Levenstein or a Levinstein, I completely relate with Mr. Schaffenberger. Ah. <laughs> well, and I, I, for, for all our sakes, I hope I'm, I'm doing him justice. Same here. He's no longer with us, so he can't complain personally. But. Yeah. Anyway, he is one of the Fawcett staffers that found his way to D.C., and uh, he was the regular penciler on the Superman's Girlfriend Lois Lane comic for a while. And on a particular issue, number 42, cover dated July 1963, uh, Captain Marvel got a tiny little background cameo in a couple of panels of that story. Uh, Lois, in that issue, had acquired some kind of uh, magic wishing power, and uh, she was fantasizing about how... Uh, that power might benefit her in her life, and she's kind of fantasizing about uh, Superman beating up all these other super people who are coming from galaxies around to court Lois Lane, and he's beating them all up and telling them, go back to your planets, Lois is mine. And one of them is kind of obviously the Big Red Cheese. Does it actually show the costume? Uh, well, it doesn't show the lightning bolt logo. It's, it's, it's okay. kind of him from the back, but gotcha. uh, it's, it's the red suit, the yellow boots, the white cape. Gotcha. And it's Schaffenberger, who was one of the eminent uh, Captain Marvel artists of the Golden Age, drawing it. Yeah. So put it all together, and uh, that, that, that's actually acknowledged as a Captain Marvel appearance in a lot of databases. I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, of that uh, unofficial crossover between the Justice League and the Avengers uh, that happened, uh, where, they, where they essentially just you know, created analogs. And, uh, oh, the and, Squadron Supreme. Yes. Well, not even that. Uh, there, wasn't, there, wasn't there an issue, uh, an issue or two where uh, they, they created entirely separate uh, analogs uh, for, for Justice League and Avengers, and they showed up like almost month by month in, uh, in DC and Marvel? I'll have to look that up, but uh, it, vague recollection of that outside of the Squadron Supreme. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then DC had uh, versions of Marvel characters, including Blue Jay and Silver Sorceress and Wangina yes. and so forth. Definitely, yes. Who have made a bunch of appearances over the years, too. Yep. Yep. So just uh, more friendly badinage across uh, publisher lines there. <laughs> All right. So after we were done recording, I went and looked up what the hell I was talking about. And it turns out what I was thinking of was uh, in 1972, Steve Englehart, Jerry Conway, and Len Wein put together a loose crossover between the Justice League and the Avengers. It began in Amazing Adventures number 16, uh, where the Beast hitches a ride from Englehart, uh, who's driving uh, the Weens and uh, Jerry Conway to Rutland. And uh, uh, Juggernaut attempts to steal Steve Englehart's car at this point. And then we pick up in Justice League number 103 uh, with uh, Batman and other Justice Leaguers winding up at the parade while attempting to uh, capture Felix Faust. And uh, Faust ult ultimately steals Englehart's car and uh, is uh, pulled over by police. And then in the third unofficial crossover, uh, Thor number 207 uh, the three comics creators again visit uh, Fagan, uh, during which Engelhart's car is stolen by the unseen and unmentioned DC villain Felix Faust, as shown in JLA number 103. Plus, you have an appearance of a Commander America, and uh, that 
uh, takes place in the Justice League issue, and there's also a mention of a web slinger in that. So that is the crossover I was trying to piece together while we were having this conversation. We now return to our conversation already in progress. All right, Mert, educate us on Milson Publishing, please. Oh, it would be my pleasure. Yeah, because uh, this uh, this was something close to a Fawcett revival. It it, it was a, a startup publishing uh, venture that was put together by some former Fawcett people, um, and uh, specifically uh, former uh, Fawcett executive editor Will Lieberson and uh, former Fawcett writer Bernie Miller. Um, those two men, together with uh, one brother of theirs each, uh, Bernie Miller's brother Joe and uh, Will Lieberson's brother Martin, uh, they all uh, pooled the resources to form a company that they decided to call Milson Publishing. You know, Miller, Lieberson, just kind of portmanteau them together, and you get Milson. Um, so they, they formed that company in 1967 to try to catch lightning in a bottle a second time, uh, if you will, um, and uh, to recapture some of the old Fawcett magic. So uh, they, they dug into their Rolodexes and uh, contacted some of the old uh, Fawcett creators, including C.C. Uh, Beck, co-creator and uh, Oh, by anyone's measure, the definitive premier artist of the original Captain Marvel, and also Otto Binder, who wrote uh, famously uh, something well, 50, between 54 and 57 percent of the total Marvel family content uh, produced at Fawcett back in the 40s and 50s. Uh, so they got the old gang back together, basically, at Nelson Publishing, and they were going to put out comics uh, under the imprint Lightning Comics. Uh, their their corner box company logo was a little thundercloud with a lightning bolt coming down from it. It was basically like the the classic Captain Marvel boom panel drawn by C.C. Beck. That was their logo. And, uh, of course, they couldn't do Captain Marvel stories, but uh, they created a new character that they hoped would be the vehicle for good, uh, good, clean, fun, whimsical storytelling, the likes of which Fawcett was famous for back in the old days. And the character they came up with for this was called Fat Man the Human Flying Saucer. <laughs> That's terribly, it's terribly unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, they they could get away with that in 1967. Um, so yes, he was billed as the superhero with three secret identities. Uh, his baseline alter ego was uh, wealthy, well, good-hearted but uh, lazy, um, uh, wealthy uh, idler Van Crawford. He was basically Bruce Wayne. If his parents had never died and if he had developed an eating disorder, (laughs) he spent all his time pursuing hobbies like stamp collecting and bird watching and stuff. His parents were kind of disappointed in him. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But then one day while on a bird watching trip, he rescued a small flying saucer that appeared to be uh, in distress. And uh, it turns out that it wasn't really in distress. It was just pretending to be as like a test of the moral fiber of whatever human beings it encountered. And Van Crawford was apparently the first one that offered to help it. Uh, so uh, as a thanks, it offers him uh, a magic chocolate malted that when he consumes it gives him superpowers. Um, and so he gets like enhanced speed and strength, just like the, the usual package. Uh, and he also gets a costume that looks very much like Captain Marvel's costume you know, with the, the short cape. Um, the only difference is that uh, it's a green and yellow costume instead of a red and yellow one, and he's got kind of an image of a flying saucer on his chest. And uh, foremost among his superpowers, uh, whenever he uh, exerts himself a little bit, you know, builds up a bit of a sweat, you know, just, just runs a certain distance, uh, he gains the ability to transform his entire body into a human flying saucer. And that's his third secret identity. He's Van Crawford, he's Fat Man, and he is a human flying saucer. Wait, Murd, a question. So... Th- the the humans the sauce that gives this power is this a spaceship or an anthropomorphic entity? Uh, uh both. 
Okay. <laughs> I, I think it's like a a, a, a a space alien that happens to assume the form of a flying saucer. Gotcha. And that would be how it uh, gives Van Crawford the ability to do the same thing. And you're saying he got part of his powers from a, a chocolate malt? <laughs> yeah, it's there's some kind of alien <laughs> chemical potion that happens to taste like chocolate. Okay, we have to remind – I'm going to take a wild guess as to why this failed. We have to remember the time period. So this is like the height of the Marvel Age, for yeah. example, in the Silver Age. Mm-hmm. So you've had, you've, we've had stories like the Galactus Saga. Galactus. Galactus. <laughs> right? We've, we've, you know, Spider-Man, Wakanda, Thor, Avengers. So this – Bird, tell me if I'm out of line. This sounds like they were trying to capture lightning in a bottle that had long since expired. <laughs> um. Well, I don't think they were ever really trying to compete with Marvel here, Chris. They were going after a, a different audience. I mean, mm. this was also the camp age of comics, you might call That's it. That's true. Well, good point. Good point. And, yeah. and let me also add that from your description of his of his costume with the green and the flying saucer, it's it it sounds a lot like the the Marvel Captain Marvel's original costume. Uh, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. Except it's. Well, yeah, yeah, the, the yeah the, the color of the main costume and the trim are kind of reversed there. Like uh, mm-hmm. the original Marvel costume was mostly white right. with green. It was like, a cream, cream military uniform. Yeah, yeah, and it's true that yeah the that sort of ringed planet he has as his chest insignia is pretty similar to the to the flying saucer that Van Crawford had. So yeah, yeah, I, I, I can see that, Ian. Good point. How long yeah. did this run for, Mert? Uh, it ran for, I believe, three issues. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and issue number four was well underway when uh, Milson had to fold its tent. Um, yeah, so uh, it, it is the Marvel Age of Comics, Chris. You're right, but they're, they're, they weren't trying to do the same kind of comics Marvel mm. was doing. Um, they were courting more like the, like the Archie crowd. Gotcha. Uh, so yeah, it was not a character meant to be taken seriously. I mean, his major weakness was food. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Not only that, his catchphrases were all food-related also. Instead of saying things like holy moly or great Scott, he said things like uh, galloping goulash and hopping hamburgers and uh, great Caesar salad. <laughs> so, yeah, a little, little goofy. And who knows? There might actually have been an audience or something like this. There were a couple of old Golden Age masters working on it. And uh, those back issues are actually sought by certain collectors. Well, I believe uh, it. All three especially, of them. Especially if he's shouting about goulash. Come on. <laughs> yeah, but I think the the real problem with the, the Milson titles, well, at least in Fat Man's case, maybe even more so than the content, was just the issue was distribution. They really didn't have a good distribution network in place. They didn't have the contact contacts at uh, the like the news dealer syndicates. Uh, they just couldn't get their comics to newsstands. Mm. So the, they published these things, and a lot of people didn't even have the opportunity to buy them. So. The company ended up folding. It, it published two series, Fat Man and something else called Todd Holton Super Green Beret, uh, which uh, the Otto Binder also worked on. Um, and uh, they were working on a third title also. Uh, they actually went so far as to produce a house ad for it, which ran in, uh, I guess, the, the third issue of Fat Man, the Human Flying Saucer. It was advertising Captain Shazam. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's on the nose. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what Captain Shazam, Shazam was going to be. Otto Binder, in a later reminiscence, claimed that they had, quote, the, the costume and gimmicks all written out. 
So they knew at least what Captain Shazam was going to be, but I'm afraid the rest of us never will. I think the nature of the character has been lost to history. But uh, the House ad uh, described uh, Captain Shazam as, quote, a turned-on super swinger. Cool. Fab. (laughs) And it was going to be brought to you by the Now Comics Group. Apparently Lightning Comics wasn't with it enough, so they, they had to come up with a different trade name. Apparently this publisher, like Fat Man, had three secret identities. Bert, but, this, yeah, we this, never got this, to see Captain Shazam. Ah, oh, you're, you're, you're mining some gems, sir. I do none of this stuff. This is fantastic. Yes. It is. It, it's some fun stuff. And, and I should probably, you know, to, to attribute sources here, um, another fine Tomorrow's publication um, by uh, I, I, Michael Yuri, I believe it was, uh, Hero A Go-Go. Uh, oh, yeah, great the, book. Uh, the great camp book. age of comics. It's yep. uh, That term actually comes from him, too. But he did do a, like a two-page feature just on Milson and Fat Man, the Human Flying Saucer. Now, I'm going to question. Did you say there are no surviving um, like sketch work of the Captain Jazam concept? We don't have anything like that? None that anyone's been able to find. At least okay. I don't think so. I mean, and again, Eric Nolan Weathington might know better than I. There has been an issue of Alter Ego magazine focusing on Otto Binder. As a creator, so maybe there's something about yep. Captain Shazam in there. I, I, I read it again. I found a cover of Flying Saucer number three on a Newsarama article, and I'm I'm amazed at not only uh, it's issue three. Not only does it have a character that looks exactly like Robot Man from the Doom Patrol on the cover, uh, only giant, uh, but but it also has uh, a, a very similar design to. Uh, uh, oh, uh, the Alpha Flight uh, character. Uh, that, oh wow! I'm looking at these covers. This, this is amazing. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and and, dear, dear God, it's it, it's just so ridiculously campy in every single way. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait! Fat Man, a sensational new fighting hero of pachyderm proportions, <laughs> whose adventures are in bold, overweighted with thrills, he strikes like a ton of bricks. Crooks have slim chances as he tips the scales, in bold, against <laughs> crime at every turn. But that's not all. Fat Man's exploits reach soaring heights in high-speed action, full of horsepower punch with the sky the limit. <laughs> Man. Did I mention he has a sidekick named Tin Man? <laughs> wow. Yes, he's <laughs> Tin Man. It's kind of like Thin Man. Uh, hey, uh, wait, Bert, I'm sorry. Wait, I have to read this. Wait. He's Van Crawford, gentle fancier of rare tropical exotics. <laughs> and a Pisces. This is tremendous. Oh, look at this. Anybody, you can go, go to Google, you type in Fat Man and Flying Flosser, comes up immediately. There's a wealth of stuff here. Uh, beautiful. And there's even a Fred Hembeck sketch. Wow. <laughs> yes, this is Mur- the kind of I, Fred Hembeck adores. I see what you're saying, though, how you, they clearly riffed right on the Captain Murloc outfit, though. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I see, so, I see the ad for Captain Shazam as well when I when I search for uh, for uh, Mission, uh, you know, Milson Publishing Captain Shazam. But yeah, you're right; it doesn't say anything other than uh, other than that it's coming soon. No actual sketch of the character. Now, Murd, let me ask you because I've always been wondered about this. You note here that you know, as you said, Milson ran out of money, but there was also apparently friction. Um, between the other creators and C.C. Beck. Now, did C.C. Beck have a reputation for being difficult? Uh, he absolutely did, yes. Okay. And so I, I don't did. know much about him, so. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll learn a little bit more about that when we talk about his brief time uh, doing artwork for DC. Okay. 
but yeah, he, uh, as you just said, Chris, uh, Milson, not, thanks to their distribution woes, they didn't sell very many comics and they ran out of their startup capital. They took a bath to the tune of oh, multiple thousands of dollars, of $64,000, and that was in 1967. Yeah, man. Yeah. So, uh, but but yeah. Also, complicating things was that CC Beck was as abrasive as ever, and uh, actually proved it proved difficult for e- for him to even work with Otto Binder, a man with whom he collaborated to quite some extent back in the old days, and uh, not a difficult person to get along with by all accounts. So uh, Lieberson and and Miller had to kind of scramble a little bit, and they brought in a couple of uh, very old-school Fawcett editors, uh, Rod Reed, who had been both a writer and an editor for Fawcett at different times, and Wendell Crowley, who was thought of by some as the like definitive Captain Marvel editor of the late Golden Age, uh, who had retired from comics and had been working at his family's lumber company in New Jersey and not enjoying it very much. So at least for a couple brief months uh, those guys especially Crowley got a chance to work in comics again to try and mm. you know hold the ship together after Binder and Beck started to have creative differences but it all became moot when the money ran out and everybody had to once again go their separate ways but interesting little silver age footnote there for the old great footnote captain marvel great. and of course let's not forget a couple of other silver age characters who happened to bear the name captain marvel one of whom would be very well known to our listeners. There's actually an entire Spotlight episode already devoted to him, um, among a couple of other cosmic characters. Indeed. And so that, of course, would be Marvel. Uh, he was introduced uh, in, um, was it Marvel Superheroes number 12 or 13? I want to say 12. Okay, it was uh, December 1967. I think I have that much right anyway. And uh, so there's much that has been said about him elsewhere. But anyway, he was there, and he's the main reason why um, we're going to be talking about comic books called Shazam as opposed yep. to comics called Captain Marvel coming out from DC. And then there's that other, other Captain Marvel, uh. <laughs> Chris lovingly and gleefully referenced a few minutes ago, and I love you for it, Chris. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the Captain Marvel character that was produced by a fly-by-night entity called MF Enterprises, MF standing for publisher Myron Fass. And this is a character that just kind of glommed onto the name of Captain Marvel for that brief time when uh, the trademark on it had run out and before Marvel had uh, really solidly gotten their claws into it. Um, And they introduced their own Captain Marvel character uh, who had nothing to do with any version of Captain Marvel before or since. This MF Enterprises version of Captain Marvel first appeared in 1966. He had six comic book appearances before MF disappeared into limbo. And... uh, He was an alien android who came to Earth, posed as a college professor or something, and his main superpower was he could cause his limbs to shoot off of his robot body and fly around through the air under their own power, directed by his mind, I guess, uh, to punch and kick bad guys remotely. Split! Yes. (laughs) There's that magic word. uh, That was the trigger to make his, his limbs go rocketing off. And do you happen to know what the other magic word he said to make them return to his body, Chris? I don't, actually. Zam. X-A-M. Uh-huh. Which combined with split Zam. It, it's, you can kind of hear the echo of the word Shazam in there. Doesn't have the drama, you know, of Flame On or Avengers Assemble, but, you know, I'm digging it. One it's of it's the, just fun to yell things. Yeah. <laughs> one of the worst superpowers I have ever heard of. <laughs> Because <laughs> you have to wonder, what does his, his, his defenseless torso do? Yeah. And all Bounce, his limbs are flying about. 
<laughs> I, I think there might be some kind of force field. I mean, oh, I, I, I seem to recall he had an amulet he wore that uh, might have uh, protected his body and his trunk while the rest of his limbs are doing their thing. <laughs> and, you know, he, he actually had a kid sidekick named Billy Baxton. Really? I didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, what a giveaway. Oh, boy. Yeah, so, like I said, six issues of that. There was no consistency of any kind. I mean, it was the, the, the creators varied very much from issue to issue. His supporting cast was never the same from one issue to the next. Sometimes he was a college professor. Sometimes he was doing something else. You know, they were just putting out the books and trying to make money. So, and he ended up uh, fighting mostly uh, bad guys that were nominal knockoffs of, of like, like, that stole the names of other existing characters, too, like Plastic Man and Dr. Fate. And and funny enough, all of their limbs fell apart too. <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> yeah, so that that was kind of a blotch on the escutcheon of uh, of of Captain Marvel. Not the the best character to to bear that name. God, I love the word escutcheon. Oh, fantastic, Merton. Mm, yes, it's and Ian. I think in a previous life you were like the guy who warmed up the crowd at vaudeville shows. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I, I am, I am Jewish, and I, and I know that you my the that, Borscht Belt. My God. I know my my dad. My dad used to take vacations to the Borscht Belt with his family when he was younger. And uh, one of my favorite shows is the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So clearly, it shows. Indeed. All right, all right, Mert, I'm very excited for your next section here because again, there's stuff here, especially about Kirby that I did not know about. So please proceed. All right. So now after covering what was going on with the Marvels while they didn't exist in the Silver Age, we finally get to the beginning of their Bronze Age. And uh, so the, their stirrings of life began in 1972. And uh, we have Carmine Infantino to thank for that. And he was, uh, again, the guy who nearly gave Captain Marvel a kind of unofficial revival with Captain Wiz in the mid-50s. He was clearly a fan of the, the Captain Marvel character and his supporting cast. And in 72, by then, he had become the publisher of national periodical publications, uh, alternately known as DC, though that wouldn't become their official name for four more years. But anyway, he, uh, once he assumed his position of power, he decided that uh, DC needed to pursue uh, a few more licensed properties, and he definitely wanted uh, Captain Marvel to be among those. So he aggressively pursued and ultimately acquired the rights to Captain Marvel and Friends from Fawcett Publications, whom, as we said, had been out of comics publishing for years by then, uh, on behalf of DC which is something of an ironic development. DC mm -hmm. basically hounds uh, Captain Marvel and friends out of publication, although that's kind of an oversimplification of things. Fawcett just decided comics weren't profitable anymore and made the decision on their own, although DC certainly helped make it easier. Yeah, that's a good point. Because you have to note that that lawsuit went on for quite some time. Oh, yeah. And they continue to publish uh, Captain Marvel and other Fawcett heroes throughout. So, But the upshot there is that DC came back and... Uh, Ended up uh, buying all of Fawcett's old superhero characters from them. It took a little longer for them to negotiate the non-Captain Marvel characters, you know, the, the, the Fawcett's other superheroes like Bullet Man, although they would eventually become part of the DC stable. But it was a while before we would actually see them in DC Comics. At first it was just Captain Marvel, Mar uh, Captain Marvel Jr., Mary Marvel, and their immediate supporting cast and friends and foes. Um, and uh, once uh, Infantino had acquired these characters, uh, the question then became uh, what would be done with them and who would be doing it? Now, this is, uh, this is what most intrigued Chris, as he alluded to a moment ago. Uh, one of the, the early bids uh, to uh, take the reins of the Marvel family of characters was uh, a recent arrival to DC in the early 70s, none other than Jack King Kirby. Wow. He was interested in doing some stuff with uh, the Marvel family. He, uh, he offered to be the editor 
of uh, the upcoming ongoing featuring these characters. Um, and he was going to hire on C.C. Beck himself to be the artist and uh, Kirby's friend uh, Mark Evanier as writer. It would have been a perfect writer for that series. Oh, absolutely. Yes, he, he would have known how to get that tone just right, just based on yeah. this, the stuff he had already written at that time for like Dell Gold Key. He knew how to do licensed properties. And what's interesting, if, if you go back to our Golden Age spotlights on Shazam and also the, the, the Kirby spotlights we did a couple of years ago, one of the first and highest selling uh, Golden Age Shazam stories, or Captain Marvel stories, I should say, was done by the Simon and Kirby studio. Um, was it Captain Marvel Avengers number one, Murd? It was. Yeah. So and, they, they, uh, there, there is some history there with, with Kirby and, and Captain Marvel. Yes, thank you for yeah, – I would have forgotten to uh, recite that piece of information, Chris. Thank you very much. I live to serve, my friend. But uh, I'm just I'm, – the thought of Kirby – because remember, this is when he he comes over. He's, he's had it with Marvel. He comes to DC, flush with new ideas. The fourth world, of course, come out of that and so forth. And the thought of him you know, taking the helm on, on Shazam is fascinating. I bet he would have done some covers too and – ah. Oh. What a missed opportunity. And, Could have seen Captain Marvel fighting Darkseid as early yeah. as 1973. Oh, boy. <laughs> wow. And, and and to even think about it, uh, you know, considering the, uh, you know, the problems that Kirby and the Kirby estate had to, you know, to try to get, uh, you know, Kirby the rights that he deserved for the stuff that he did for Marvel Comics, for him to be, you know, so involved in... Uh, you know, Captain Marvel of all things coming to to DC and trying to get his his uh, you know his his feet involved with that, and to also get some of the original creators involved is a re- really extra wrinkle that I kind of appreciate uh, mm. w- with with this whole process here. You know, it, that rights are such a very interesting and unique thing, and it's still weird to me this day, to this day that DC essentially stopped them from publishing the damn character, and he wound up. With DC, after all those years later, it's such a fascinating wrinkle in the history of comic books. And the last vestige of, of that era is that, like, when when you saw that recent Shazam movie, yeah, wasn't the high school called Fawcett High School? Yes, it was. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yep. So, a little concession to history there, since they yep. decided to set it in a real city as opposed to Fawcett City. Yep. Mm. Although, yeah, there's there's kind of a. A little interesting, uh, another interesting wrinkle, uh, to use Ian's term there, uh, uh, historically around the name Fawcett City, which uh, I'll say for the very end of our uh, our run here. Uh, because uh, it wasn't until the very end of the pre-crisis era for Captain Marvel that uh, he was established as operating in Fawcett City. Huh. I hadn't even known that until I started uh, doing research for this spotlight. Wow. All right. So anyway, with a missed opportunity indeed, uh, DC passed on Kirby's offer, mainly because Kirby at that time was on the West Coast. And uh, DC wanted to keep all this stuff as they wanted to keep this project and as many other projects as possible in-house. So they didn't want to farm it out to the West Coast and let uh, Kirby do his thing with it out there. So instead, uh, the legendary Julie Schwartz was ordained as the editor of this uh, new Captain Marvel project. In fact, he's the one who is accredited with coming up with the idea of uh, entitling it Shazam. Because, of course, Marvel wasn't going to let them call this Captain Marvel Captain Marvel because Marvel's own Captain Marvel character was already being published. They kind of had um, the, the squatter's rights to the trademark. So it was Julie Schwartz who came up with the idea of calling it Shazam as opposed to something like The World's Mightiest Mortal or some alternate name. So he became the editor, and uh, the original announced creative team, which had fandom 
uh, especially those old enough to remember the original Captain Marvel Adventures, uh, the, the, the creative team was announced as Denny O'Neill as writer and Bob Oxner as, as a penciler. And uh, Oxner uh, was not especially comfortable with this arrangement since, uh, by his own admission, he had never even heard of Captain Marvel until he was offered uh, the chance to pencil this series. But then C.C. Uh, Beck became available. Now, I think the way it worked out – now, recollections do vary. You know, that, that's often the way it goes with the history of comics since we often have to rely on oral history for these things as to whether D.C. reached out to Beck or Beck reached out to D.C. But I think what happened was that Beck contacted D.C. and offered – to uh, once again draw his own character. And DC responded by uh, asking him to send in an art sample. This is the guy who created the character. Oh, boy. And DC wants him to prove graphically his worthiness to continue to do so in the 1970s. (laughs) So Beck kind of shrugged and uh, drew an image of Captain Marvel as Rip Van Winkle, you know, playing on the fact that he'd basically been asleep for 19 years and was just now going to wake up. And that was all anybody at DC needed, fortunately. <laughs> and uh, so Beck uh, was on board, and he was announced as uh, the penciler, or uh, the, the artist, uh, for this new run of Captain Marvel Adventures in the 70s with Denny O'Neill as writer. And uh, Bob Oxner was kind of relieved about that, but uh, Oxner would still get his chance to draw some Captain Marvel stories later on in the 70s, as we'll see. So the creative team was in place, Schwartz as editor, O'Neill as writer, and Beck, the original co-creator of The Captain, as the artist. And that brings us up to the debut at DC Comics of Captain Marvel, The World's Mightiest Mortal. In Shazam! Number 1, February 1973 was the cover date. It actually hit stands in late 1972. And it's just about exactly 19 years, give or take a month either way, of uh, when they uh, went into dormancy in 1954. Um, We can start with the cover. I'm going to spend a little more time on this issue than I will a lot of the subsequent stories. And so we're going to try to kick it into high gear speed-wise as we go here because we don't want to be here all night. (laughs) But the first issue is pretty important historically. Um, So the cover – you know, further ironies here, we have uh, Billy Batson changing into Captain Marvel. The art there is by C.C. Beck. He signs it. And uh, But off to the left-hand side, this is a fairly famous cover image. We have Superman standing there, drawn by Nick Carty with uh, the, the facial features uh, retouched by Murphy Anderson. Uh, he is uh, pulling back a curtain and gesturing towards Captain Marvel you know, as, as though introducing him to readers. And indeed, he probably was, since a lot of people buying comics in 1972 or 3 probably uh, weren't old enough to remember the first run of of Captain Marvel stories. So there's this DC icon introducing us to this character that DC helped to uh, uh, put out of business back in 1954, and now he's introducing him back into comics. All in good fun. And then there's that famous cover logo, Shazam, with the exclamation bolt at the end. Over that is are the words first brand new issue with one magic word Shazam and below it the original Captain Marvel. So DC does get to boast a little bit about how this is another Captain Marvel character on the cover although Marvel eventually did send them a cease and desist about that even and uh so the, the, the those words the original Captain Marvel only appear on the cover of the first 14 issues of the series with issue well, we 15. should note I'm sorry, Mary, go ahead. I apologize. I didn't mean to uh, with issue 15, the original Captain Marvel was replaced with the phrase, the world's mightiest mortal. Mm. And we should note that they could still call him Captain Marvel within the stories, correct, at yes. this point? Absolutely. Okay. 
Well, it's the same. It's the same thing with uh, you know there being you know multiple scarecrows in you know DC and Marvel and what have you. You know that it's it's it, it it's very hard to stop people from using a name in a story itself, uh, as opposed to you know on the on the cover where it's most prominent. I, I feel like that's that's a bit more of a stick or scenario. Um, and Murd, you note that like with many of the issues in the series, they they were putting in classic Golden Age reprints. Ah, yes, absolutely. That's uh, uh, for the first several issues of the series. Um, each issue of Shazam uh, cons- consisted of two lead stories, just a, maybe ten or so pages each, and a Golden Age reprint in the back. So that that is true of this first issue as well. Uh, we've got a story reprinted from uh, Captain Marvel Adventures number fifty-five uh, in the back of this comic. And um, and Suspendium. Yes, Suspendium. Yes. Okay. So. <laughs> Opening the comic, uh, we get a great splash page uh, by Beck, of course. Uh, Captain Marvel flying triumphantly out at the reader. And uh, uh, one of the biggest boom panels ever to appear in a Captain Marvel comic uh, to that point. Um, Taking up the whole page, pretty much. The lightning bolt coming down in the background as Captain Marvel flies in the foreground. And uh, the title, In the Beginning. And as we turn the page, the first thing we see is just Billy Batson walking down the street as if nothing had happened uh, since 1954 and waving to a passerby and saying, hello there, Mr. Binder. And <laughs> Mr. Binder is carrying a portfolio with the initials OOB on it. So it's pretty obvious whom this is supposed to be. Class. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Otto Binder. Exactly. Nice. Yes, making a, a cameo, and appropriately so, because, you know, as we've said, he did more than any other single writer to build the Captain Marvel mythos of the Golden Age. And uh, he was not destined to write any actual Captain Marvel stories in the Bronze Age, so it's nice that they gave him this little cameo. Yeah. Uh, which is actually, they didn't even tell him they were going to do it, as it turns out. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, um, I'm going to flip quick here to uh, the letters column in uh, Shazam number four. Uh, they did send a uh, complimentary copy of Shazam number no. 1 to Otto Binder and to a couple other Golden Age uh, creators from uh, Fawcett's past. Um, and here's the letter that he sent in response. Thanks for the inscribed copy of Shazam and your compliment. I was quite startled when I first heard from a fan that my name was actually used in the first script, evidently as a tribute from the writer. <laughs> so there was a surprise for him. The comics seem like some long-ago dream, and I have no slightest hankering to go back to them. In case you're wondering, I see that C.C. Beck has the same old magic touch he used to have with the big red cheese. Your writer seems to be good, capturing the flavor nicely. So there's Otto Bender uh, granting his blessing to this enterprise, uh, even though he had no desire whatsoever to be a part of it. Not that I think DC seriously made him the offer, but he he would have turned it down if they had. Mm. Uh, One thing should be noted about uh, Mr. Bender is... um, in the spring of 1967, right around the time when Millicent Publishing got started and then fell apart, uh, Otto Binder's only child, his teenage oh, yes, daughter horrible. Mary, yeah. died in an auto accident. Oh, no. Uh, and all the magic of comics seemed to dissipate for him after uh, that. So he just kind of retired and just withdrew from the world of comics altogether. It's, that's a shame. And. And uh, as uh, fate would have it, uh, he would actually uh, pass away himself in October of 1974, not long after the events we're now describing. So such is Otto Bender's exit from the world of Captain Marvel. But at least he he got that little cameo there. Um, So Otto Bender gets to be the person who passes uh, Billy Batson on the street. And he does a double take when he realizes, hey, Billy Batson, but you've been missing for 20 years and you haven't aged. You're still a kid. How come? 
And Billy says, it's a long story, Mr. Binder. You just wouldn't believe it. And then Mr. Binder wanders off in distress, and uh, Billy just kind of <laughs> chuckles and thinks to himself, oh, boy, a lot of uh, unbelievable things have happened to me. And then he launches into a six-page reminiscence, which is basically <laughs> a recap of his Golden Age origin. All the classic elements are there, you know, the enchanted subway car, the visit with old Shazam, uh, the bestowal of his powers, and then Shazam dying under a giant block of granite. It's, it's all retold there in classic form. And then we move from there right on back to the present of uh, 1973, as Billy is thinking to himself, that was the beginning. For the next few years, I made good my promise. I mean, Captain Marvel's promise. I fought evildoers everywhere, and I usually won. Then the world's wickedest scientist found a way to exile me. Well, exile's over, and I'm going after the man who caused it. And that leads us right into the uh, main story of this issue, uh, which is entitled The World's Wickedest Plan. It's again by Denny O'Neill and C.C. Beck. And it's here where we learn just what has happened in story uh, to the Marvel family and their friends and foes during the past 19 years. They, 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 the creative team decided to address that semi-metatextually here instead of just saying – okay, the past 19 years haven't really happened, and uh, the Marvel family's been active continually for however many years that is comic book time. Instead, uh, 19 years real time have passed, and uh, the Marvels find themselves in a world they never made, having to adjust to the early 1970s. And uh, the story goes on to tell us, uh, it begins with Captain Marvel capturing a couple of crooks named uh, Julie and Charlie, (laughs) as in Schwartz and C.C. Beck. The first C stands for Charles. So a little uh, meta cameo there by the editor and write, and uh, artist. Um, and he captures them, and, and he's uh, convinced that they're working for Savannah. And they're his first lead to capturing Savannah. And uh, then he launches into another flashback sequence, which explains where everybody's been for 19 years. Apparently, back in 1954, uh, Captain Marvel Jr. and uh, Mary are all accepting like a public award. And uh, all their friends were present for this, when suddenly a kind of uh, tractor beam sucks them all up into space, and up in a spaceship up above uh, abducting all these people are Dr. Sivana, Captain Marvel's archenemy, and his uh, nefarious children, uh, Georgia Sivana and uh, Thaddeus Jr. And uh, they're abducting the Marvel family and all their friends, everybody who happens to be standing around them, and sealing them in a globe made out of a wonder metal of Sivana's own uh, own design, Suspendium, which is perfectly in line with the Golden Age style. Savannah or Captain Marvel were always coming up with some miracle alloy or other with a silly-sounding name like that. Uh, as it turns out, Suspendium has the property of placing any living being within it into a state of suspended animation. So uh, Savannah's intent is to just imprison Captain Marvel and the Marvel family forever in this globe as it, uh, it, it eternally orbits the Earth. However, uh, Thad Jr., uh, gets a little uh, over-boisterous in congratulating his papa <laughs> on a successful scheme, and he smacks Savannah on the back and knocks Savannah into the controls. Their spaceship goes out of control and crashes into the suspendium globe, knocking it slightly off course and also making the Savannahs subject to the suspendium's effects. So now the Savannah family and the Marvel family and their whole supporting cast are trapped in this suspendium globe for 19 years as it's orbit becomes more erratic and it uh, spins closer and closer to the sun until finally at the end of 1972 the suspendium starts to dissipate and uh, Captain Marvel of course being the mightiest of them all he first awakens from the uh, waning effects of the suspendium and he immediately goes into action he frees Mary and Junior the three of them push the suspendium globe back down to earth while the savannas get away temporarily they smash the globe open and free everybody inside 
And on page eight, we're treated to a little one panel uh, view of all the well, not all the people who were trapped in there with him, as it turns out. It, they keep at as the series wears on throughout the 70s and into the 80s. It's revealed that more and more people that uh, the writers wanted to use um, hmm. that uh, had been part of the, the Captain Marvel's uh, orbit back in the 40s and 50s, um, but uh, apparently didn't age at all in the intervening time. Uh, they were all in the suspendium globe also. Uh, but the little crowd that we get to see uh, in this panel, and uh, E. Nelson Bridwell has a text page later in the issue that provides a little uh, graphic key, uh, a little who's who to who all these characters are. Um, they are, first of all, Uncle Marvel, the... Uh, uh, honorary member of the Marvel family who has no powers whatsoever but pretends to, and he's such a lovable old fraud that the other Marvels just go along with it. Mm-hmm. There's Billy's uh, receptionist, a Miss Joan Jameson, who is one of the people who knows that Billy and Captain Marvel are one and the same, although it was kind of a point of honor with the old Fawcett creators, and this was continued by the DC creators of the 70s, that uh, Billy's secret identity was not a big deal. Like there was not endless stories, as with Superman, where he was taking ridiculous great pains to keep his secret identity <laughs> a secret. He would basically – Billy would just say Shazam out on a crowded street, and a lightning bolt would strike him, and everybody would be like, huh? Huh? And, and nobody ever put two and two together. I've always just kind of assumed it was a magic side effect of the magic lightning. Like but, Peter Parker in the MCU. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say Peter Parker or Peter Parker? Peter Parker, yeah, no, mm-hmm. like, like like Peter Parker in the in basically every single MCU movie so far, how he can't keep his damn mask on, and everybody probably <laughs> knows who he is by now. I, I'm Peter Parker. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> he should just have cards printed eventually. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Drew Jameson is one of the few people who actually knows his secret and cares about it and keeps it for him. And of course, Mr. Sterling Morris, who is Billy's boss, the owner of a Wiz Radio and Television. Uh, Mr. Morris's niece, Sissy Summerlee who is Billy's girlfriend, uh, Ma and Pa Potter, Potter, the kindly old couple uh, in whose boarding house Billy lives, um, Professor Edgewise, one of a large number of uh, lovable crackpot scientists that populated the pages of Golden Age Captain Marvel stories, um, Dr. Savannah's good daughter, Beautia Savannah, who along with her brother Magnificus, they're like the white sheep of the family. Savannah's got two kids who are tall and blonde and attractive and uh, good of heart, and then there's the two kids that take after him. So Beautia is one of those that uh, kind of is a a shame uh, to Savannah, and uh, she was in the Suspendium Globe with all the others. And, of course, Mr. Talkie Tawny, the talking... Of course. Yeah, you can't do a Marvel revival without him in some form. So, Mert, it sounds like from your description, because I have not read this issue, that they really try to infuse that Golden Age flavor into this story. Without a question. Yeah, Ian's observation uh, near the beginning of this episode is really on on targets. I mean, it's they, – they tried very hard, especially at the beginning, to preserve that Golden Age flavor. Yeah. Um, and even when we got to the world's finest run in the latter 70s, uh, thanks to Bridwell, who was a huge fan of the old material and had an encyclopedic knowledge of it, uh, he did his best to preserve as much of the old history and the old tone as he could, while also making it slightly more sophisticated uh, for the late 70s uh, discerning comics buyer. But yeah, it never quite lost that luster of the golden age. And nor should it. Yes, although uh, it kind of depends on whom you ask. You know, there are some, as Matt might call them, faucet hardos who just convince themselves <laughs> that nothing DC ever did with these characters could ever possibly match the magic of the Golden Age. Now, you note here, uh, as we finish out this look at the first issue, that there's a lot of hostility between Cece Beck and Julie Schwartz. Uh, yeah, Schwartz pretty much despised Beck from day <laughs> one. 
and uh, there, there's kind of a an apocryphal account, you know, that a, a legend, if you will, that uh, that that Beck, well, that, that Schwartz asked C.C. Beck to redraw uh, the, the the cover image from issue number one, and that he later gloated that uh, he'd actually that he claimed that the cover had gotten lost, but he supposedly later gloated to friends and associates that it uh, it was never lost. He had it. He just wanted to. Uh, make Beck draw something else because yeah. he disliked the man so much. And he was, Beck was, by most accounts, a, a difficult person to work with. I mean, he, he is one of those accounts, actually. He, he referred to himself, he, he had a, a column once called the Krusty Curmudgeon, a play on his initials. So he, he was aware of how opinionated and uh, difficult he was. I guess but, it's not to be said for that type of self-awareness. <laughs> yeah, it, it does mitigate uh, the, the the negative effects it can have on one's co-workers sometimes. <laughs> I, I also want to point out one of the reasons why I wasn't able to check out these issues and something that DC is going to have to fix sooner than later, although I know they're still adding uh, and digitizing a whole bunch of books, uh, you know, minute by minute as much as possible. Uh, this entire series is unavailable digitally at this point. Really? Uh, yeah. Wow. It, it, it is it is not on Comixology and it is not on the uh, on the DC Universe app. Uh, so uh, get on that DC because I'd love to read some of these old uh, these old issues eventually. But uh, well, considering the hullabaloo about the movie, that surprises me. Yeah, I know the the very first uh, thing that uh, that you see with the with the name Shazam on it uh, is is the eighties uh, series, and uh, and it doesn't happen until then. Um, so huh. that's uh, wow, very very surprising uh, to say the least. So that's the four issue Roy Thomas miniseries. Correct. That's, that's the first thing. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. That is, that is the first thing that's listed from the looks of it in, in comicsology as well. Unless my uh, my eyes deceive me. Hmm. Yeah, that is baffling to me. Yep. But well, one alternative I can recommend, uh, if you can track down a copy of me on Amazon or someplace, uh, DC did produce one showcase reprint volume. Okay. Um, of this uh, 70 Shazam material. Um, it's a showcase presents Shazam volume one, 500 pages of comics for 1699. It's in black and white, which is, you know, suboptimal, but, uh, at least it, it's something. And I bought my copy at wild pig comics several years ago. Nice. It's actually been very helpful to me. If I need like a quick, uh, ready reference with a table of contents to look up, uh, what, uh, month, uh, a certain issue was published or who the creative team was. I have it right here at my side as we're talking about this. But uh, not everything from this uh, 70s run of Shazam is reprinted in that volume, it should be said. Uh, none of the reprint stories are, you know, the Golden Age stuff is re-reprinted in this volume, just the stuff that was new in the early 70s. Mm. And not even all of that, because there's there's a, one story, as we'll see eventually, that features the character Isis from the live-action TV show that DC could not reprint because they no longer had the license. Right. Makes sense. All right. And uh, one more note about uh, Shazam number one. Uh, Captain Marvel rounds up the Savannas in the end and uh, hauls them away to prison. Uh, but uh, they, the Savannas pause in mid-scowl to agree with Captain Marvel that it's great to be alive after 19 years of non-publication. <laughs> so there we are. The uh, Shazam series of the 70s is off and running. All uh, right, now let's move on to issue number two. Uh, which uh, finds the return of another classic uh, Captain Marvel foe of the Golden Age, Mr. Mind, who had not actually been seen in comics since the Golden Age, since at the end of the classic Monster Society of Evil serial, he was shown to have been electrocuted, you know, sentenced to death in the electric chair after causing the death of uh, 186,744 people. So he, he earned the title World, World's Wickedest Worm by doing that. Um, so we open with... Uh, 
Mr. Mind's corpse stuffed and mounted on display in a museum. Um, we, we were shown it as part of a tour being led by Mr. Talkie Tawny, whose day job is as a museum tour guide. Uh, but then uh, a mysterious earthquake happens, and the stuffed Mr. Mind disappears down a fissure in the museum floor. Turns out the real Mr. Mind has been alive all this time, although why he hasn't been active uh, in the intervening years, we don't know. I mean, why he didn't try to take over the world while Captain Marvel and friends were in suspended animation, you think it would be easier for him to do that. But nope, he waits until they all come back and can foil him. But anyway, he uh, he take he steals the stuff, Mister Mind, to get his little glasses and uh, radio speaker back, uh, and then he immediately launches on a scheme to destroy half of North America, uh, starting at the Gateway Arch out in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. So there we go. We're reviving another classic Captain Marvel tradition of visiting real American cities and landmarks. We get to see the uh, St. Louis Gateway Arch prominently featured in that story. Um, so Cap uh, thwarts Mr. Mind pretty quickly and uh, asks him point blank, say, how, how come you're not dead? You know, you were electrocuted back in 1940-something, and Mr. Mind, of course, refuses to tell him. And there's a little teaser uh, caption at the bottom that says, um, but we'll find out, listeners, uh, in the upcoming issues of Shazam. It would actually take a long time before that story was finally told, and when it was, it was in two panels. But it almost becomes kind of a running gag in the Shazam series that uh, Mr. Mind keeps on not explaining how he's alive. I got better. <laughs> Burn him anyway. <laughs> now, did he have his voice box? Yes, he did. Yes, he had. He had uh, that's why he attacked that museum. He needed to get it back from the stuffed facsimile of him that was on display there. Nice. So <laughs> once he gets his uh, you know little accessories back in place, he's ready to do some villainy. <laughs> And then in, in the backup story in that issue um, introduces a, a character who would be kind of a recurring supporting character in the 70s series, uh, Sonny Sparkle, the nicest kid in the world. And Sonny Sparkle, he has almost like a, a pheromonal distillation of niceness going on for him. And he is just so adorable and so nice, this kid. He's like, he's about Billy's age. He's like 13 years old. Um, and he's just so cute that everybody he meets wants to give him presents. He's, he's a little embarrassed by this. He actually, like, goes out in incognito in public. He wears, like, uh, heavy coats and glasses to avoid exposing people to his niceness so that he's not weighed down with all these gifts. People, like, give him literally the coats off their backs. They give him cars. Uh, he, he has to have a wagon come around from local charities to take haul this stuff away at the end of every week. He's just uh, that, uh, that burdened with the unsolicited gifts from people. So, uh, and this is the kind of character that uh, one can kind of imagine Captain Marvel meeting in the Golden Age. So Sonny made a few appearances, and Captain Marvel usually had to help him out of jams that he got into as a result of his niceness, and uh, or to help other people out of jams that they get into as a result of their reaction to his niceness. And that story was written by Elliot S. Magan. Note the exclamation point after the S, who is one of my uh, favorite uh, Bronze Age writers, actually. Better known for his uh, Superman stuff, but uh, he's also one of the three contributing writers uh, to this uh, 70s volume of Shazam. And I think there were actually literally three writers who wrote anything for this series, and uh, Megan was one of them. Wow. And, and the alliteration is strong, to say the least. Sunny Sparkle. <laughs> yep. Uh, in a later issue, he also introduced uh, Sunny's roughneck cousin, Rowdy Sparkle. So he- <laughs> He ruined it. <laughs> Destroyed the magic. Uh. All right. Now, in Shazam number three, um, here is one of the very few stories that actually you know, addressed in any way whatsoever, even half seriously, the repercussions of Captain Marvel 
and his friends and supporting cast members and enemies being trapped in this suspendium bubble for 19 years. Uh, for the most part, it was just used as kind of a jokey story device for the first issue and then just back to good old-fashioned business as usual. Um, very few stories actually dealt with uh, the, the, this, uh, the, the problems that might have developed as a result of uh, being out of the loop for 19 years seriously. Um, so in, in Shazam number three, we do get uh, Cap, uh, we get Billy trying to attend uh, a, a local dance in 1973. It's uh, a teen hop featuring the music of uh, uh, Joe Cool and the Freaky Geeks. And this is uh, C.C. Beck trying to illustrate for us the youth culture of 1973. Mm. And uh, he was an old, Beck was an old man already in 1973. So his idea of uh, 1970s music was thump, twang, boing. <laughs> Those are the sound effects that re re represented the groovy music that were being played at this uh, teen hop that Billy is attending. And he feels very badly out of step with everybody else there. Uh, he's wearing brand new clothing, but it doesn't look anything like what teenagers of the day are wearing. And uh, so he gets disheartened and wanders out into the night. And uh, he goes to see old Shazam after this and pleads with old Shazam to allow him to grow up, to, to turn Billy into an adult so that he could be the, the age that he's supposed to be in 1973. And uh, old Shazam obliges, but uh, with the unintended uh, side effect that when Billy next, uh, the adult Billy, uh, next says Shazam, he turns into a 14-year-old Captain Marvel, which unfortunately puts him at the mercy of uh, a wizard who is disgruntled. He's a teenaged wizard who's disgruntled that uh, Wiz TV didn't hire him uh, to do an act on TV. So he starts uh, causing trouble with his magic, which only affects people who are like less than uh, – who are younger than 19, I think, is, is the rule there. So young Captain Marvel can be somewhat affected by his spells. Um, so there, there's your central conflict and, uh, eventually, uh, Billy manages to get the upper hand of, he changes back to adult Billy so the wizard's spells can't affect him and then just basically spanks this teenage wizard, literally spanks him until, uh, he reverses his magic and, yeah. <laughs> and then teenaged Cap flies back to old Shazam's temple to get him to reverse the effects of the magic. So, yeah, so that, that's one of the very few stories that in any way, uh, the looks at the consequences of all these people being trapped in suspension. For the most part, all the rest of them just go right back to their lives as if nothing had happened for 19 years. <laughs> and here I was complaining about the five-year gap in Avengers Endgame. <laughs> well, I, I, when, I, when I think of, uh, of a combination of both C.C. Beck and, a com and uh, Billy trying to act like, uh, you know, one of his uh, fellow hip, cool cats... I, I immediately uh, think of uh, the episode of Portlandia where Steve Buscemi puts on uh, uh, on you know high school clothes and a shirt that reads "Music Band" and, and carries a skateboard and goes, "How do you do, fellow kids?" That's uh, that's absolutely the the personality and the style that seems to be being broadcasted here. You know, I've never seen an episode of Portlandia, but that description was vivid enough to give me just the right idea. Right on. Oh, yes, it's it does seem very much like that. But yeah. it's Beck kind of satirizing something he doesn't entirely understand. And a spanking. So, OK. <laughs> yeah, that's another uh, golden age convention that doesn't uh, really play all that well in the modern age. Let, let me just make sure that I'm remembering this correctly. Um, 
Oh, okay. Yep, I'm I'm actually I'm off base. I'm looking in my uh, showcase edition here. Uh-huh. He doesn't actually spank the the the, the teenage wizard. Okay. He just uh, bends his arm behind his back and then lifts the wizard over his head. Got it. But uh, th- there will be some spanking in a later story, though. That, that I'm positive about. Yeah, because I I, I I I thought that Batman was the only one who said Papa spank, and that and that was that was only <laughs> one issue, and we don't like to talk about that issue. <laughs> no, we don't. It's probably better we don't actually. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. And then the backup story of Shazam number three was also by Elliot S. Magan, and it, it was called The Wizard of Phonograph Hill, and it's introducing an analog to uh, Dr. Thomas Edison, who is named Dr. Thomas Kilowatt. Hmm. Magan is kind of a scientist fanboy. Um, he worked uh, little tributes to well-known scientists, pioneering scientists and inventors in a lot of his stories. He actually uh, introduced the idea that once a year on Einstein's birthday, Lex Luthor goes to Einstein's grave and falls to his knees and weeps because he feels that he's personally failed Einstein because, because of his many failures to overcome Superman, thereby proving human intellect superiority to superhuman brawn. Wow. So, yeah, the, Megan was a scientist fan, so he introduced this uh, kilowatt character, um, yet another recurring crackpot scientist type uh, to clutter Captain Marvel's world. Uh, then Shazam number four. Uh, this is the return of another classic Golden Age bad guy, Ibak the Cursed, uh, whose uh, secret, uh, human identity is uh, Stanley Stinky Print Whistle, who was an up-and-coming criminal back in the Golden Age. He made a deal with the devil to acquire the attributes and the evil might of four of the most evil men in history, whose names make up uh, his acronymic name. Uh, he has the uh, the ability to inspire terror of Ivan the Terrible. Uh, the cunning of Cesare Borgia, the fierceness of Attila the Hun, and the cruelty of Caligula, hence Ibak. Um, so uh, these four spirits come back to haunt uh, Mr. Printwhistle, who has gone straight since the 40s. He's not one of the people who was in the Suspendium Globe, it turns out. Uh, and they get on his case to say his magic word and become Ibak again and go out and challenge Captain Marvel, which he does. And Captain Marvel just does what he always does, easily overpowers Ibak and... Forces him, gets him in a headlock, and for, squeezes the evil spirits out of him until he says Ibak and turns back to human again. So there's your return of Ibak. <laughs> and the backup story introduces a one off character who might have had, he had some interesting potential, but he was only used in this one story a guy named Conway Mann. Con for short, Con Mann. Uh. And. kind of on the nose because that's exactly what he is he he runs these little scams you know like uh, pretending to be hurt in car accidents and then trying to settle out of court with the driver uh, for money Um, turns out he was born on the same day as Billy Batson in the same hospital and there's kind of a destiny bond between them as a result and incidentally as far as C.C. Beck is concerned in this story uh, Billy Batson's birthday is April 1st ah other stories have it as different dates, but uh, the Beck of 1973 thought April 1st was the right thing to, to have as Billy's birthday. So anyway, the two of them have this strange connection. And Conway Mann, and, uh, he's, he's grown to a full-grown adult and because he wasn't in the suspendium for 19 years. And when he encounters Billy Batson and uh, he touches his shoulder, he discovers that when he's in – he has kind of a dead zone effect happening. He can, he can see the future whenever he's in contact with Billy, and his first thought is to use that for – personal gain but billy is just so naive and good-hearted he he kind of uh, reforms conway man against his will and instead he and billy use this precognitive power to uh, stop a crime and earn a major monetary reward 
which he promptly gives away to no, – uh, they actually cause some prom- property damage in the course of solving the case, so he has to give over the money immediately to, to pay that off. Uh, so uh, that's something that would have been interesting though, this uh, combination of a uh, young and old character – uh, sort of criminally inclined and crime fighter, and uh, how his that their powers only work uh, when they're touching one another. Yeah, and I would have been interested to know what uh, like the, the the reason for this connection was. Maybe the writer of this story, who I'm pretty sure was Magan again, had an idea in mind. Uh, but I never uh, really explored the matter further because that's the only uh, story in which that character appeared. Add, add that to the uh, long pile of characters that were one-offs uh, in the in the history of comic books that everybody's like, whatever happened to that guy? And like, absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> only too true. Yeah, and uh, that's... <sighs> yeah, there's there's a number of examples of that just in, in this series. Yep. <sighs> and uh, so Billy, he, he goes along with what Conway Man wants him to do, and... Uh, <laughs> He utters a, a phrase that becomes kind of like a, a a minor catchphrase for Billy. He says it almost as much as he says "Holy moly!" in the course of the seventies, and that is that sounds logical. No. Okay, I just came back for that sounds logical. That's that's not exactly the catchiest of catchphrases, but whatever works. It seems it amused Megan anyway. Because he was writing, you know, trying to write in the Golden Age style. He was writing lots of absurd little plot twists that uh, people in their right minds, people of a lesser degree of naivete than Billy Batson would never have accepted. So Megan just kind of, uh, <laughs> for his own peace of mind, has Billy say things like, that sounds logical, wink to the audience. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway... Uh, let's, uh, leapfrog straight into Shazam number six for a brief second here. And I'm only mentioning that because of the title of the second story in that issue, Dexter Knox and his electric grandmother. <laughs> it's... That's my favorite band. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> well, it ought to be. Yeah, it's... right. But it's you gotta like their early stuff though. Oh yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Once those were the albums, man. Weirdly enough, when they went electric, it just wasn't the same. <laughs> I guess when they lost the irony, they... Well, anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Dexter Knox is a boy genius and one of uh, Billy's closest friends. And uh, he apparently... He was not shown in Shazam number one as having been in the suspendium, but he must have been because he's no older than he was in the 40s and 50s. And uh, his grandmother must have been there, too, because she'd be dead by now. Let's <laughs> put it where it's at. But, yeah, she accidentally triggers one of Dexter's fantastic inventions and gains electrical powers and yada, yada, yada. And in the end, uh, Dexter and his grandma win a free trip to Miami. The end. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's move on to Shazam number seven, uh, which gives us the first uh, focus on Mr. Talky Tawny of the Bronze Age. And that involves Mr. Tawny uh, helping Captain Marvel foil a jewel smuggler uh, who also uh, happens to own a private zoo. He's kind of an animal collector. And so Mr. Tawny uses his ability to communicate with animals as his end to... uh, infiltrate uh, this guy's private zoo and help Billy bust the bad guy. There's one point where Billy, uh, well, as Billy, uh, he goes in and tries to interview this guy and uh, asks a few too many questions, and the guy ends up uh, cold-cocking him and binding and gagging him, as the bad guys always do to Billy, and uh, throwing him into a tiger enclosure, dousing him with catnip oil. Mr. Tawny's uh, feral instincts nearly get the better of him, but uh, his fangs tear off Billy's gag just in time, and Billy says Shazam, and uh, the day is saved. 
And the backup story, uh, this is the first script written by uh, E. Nelson Bridwell in the Shazam series. And uh, Bridwell is a tremendously important figure in uh, the, the, the Bronze Age leg of uh, the original Captain Marvel's history. Uh, he's the one who probably wrote uh, the single greatest number of scripts for Captain Marvel during this period. Uh, he was Julie Schwartz's assistant editor at the time, uh, as indeed he had been assistant editor to DC editor Mort Weisinger for many long, painful, torturous years. And now, uh, under Julie Schwartz, he's kind of coming into his own. He's getting more opportunities to write the kind of stuff he wants to write. And uh, this is the first chance he get to write uh, one of his very favorite uh, childhood comic book heroes, Captain Marvel. And uh, that the story he writes is, uh, what's in a name? Doomsday. And that is the second feature of Shazam number seven. Um, and it's it's about uh, kind of a, the power of uh, gossip and rumor. Like uh, there's a, a crook holed up in uh, – two crooks that are holed up in Ma and Pa Potter's boarding house. And one of them says to the other, don't even say the name Captain Marvel or I'll murderize you. And it starts kind of a whisper mm-hmm. down the lane effect throughout the city until everybody thinks that something terrible and catastrophic will happen if somebody so much as mentions the name Captain Marvel. And you can guess there, there, there's something of a meta level to this story because it reflects DC's own problems with mentioning the name Captain Marvel, thanks to Marvel Comics. Mm. So, and then this was one of those scripts that uh, C.C. Beck acknowledged that, uh, in, in his opinion, at least at the time. I mean, he, his attitude kind of retroactively soured about DC, and in the following years and decades, he would claim that all the 70s DC Shazam stories were garbage, and that he was sorry to have been associated with them. But uh, at the time, he actually acknowledged that some of the scripts were of high quality, and he gave DC credit for giving him, as artist, more input to change the stories if he didn't like them. Mm. But this was one script that Beck thought uh, had the kind of the Golden Age flavor to it, and he gave Ridwell credit for that. Uh, then Shazam number eight. Uh, there was actually no new material in that one. Uh, so in my Shazam showcase, just the cover is reproduced, none of the interior pages. But it was the first issue of the Shazam series in the 100-page super spectacular format. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, DC throughout the mid to late 70s was experimenting with uh, different uh, issue formats and lengths and price points and so on. Um, and so the 100-page super spectacular was commonly encountered around this time. Um, and it was nothing but Golden Age reprints. But uh, there were one or two uh, pages of bonus material, um, mostly provided by uh, assistant editor Bridwell, including uh, one letter call uh, of reader mail that uh, consisted entirely of a minor debate over how and if Mary Marvel should be updated for the 70s. You know, what her costume should look like and uh, especially what to do about uh, you know, her own personal pantheon of Shazam elders. You know, as we know, uh, uh, Shazam stands for a different group of gods for Mary than it did for for for, for Billy as Captain Marvel. Like hers were all uh, goddesses, except for the Z, which was Zephyrus, which is a, a male deity actually. So Zephyrus gave uh, Mary Marvel her swiftness, but all the other uh, Shazam elders for her were goddesses, and they gave her traits like uh, grace and beauty, and which are not especially useful uh, in fighting crime. Were they debating that they wanted Mary Marvel to have a, a a more seventies appropriate outfit, so to speak? What what, what was the, the the essence of this? There were some readers who were arguing for exactly that, and then there were some other readers who wanted her to look exactly as she did in like nineteen forty two. 
So uh, she was originally based on Judy Garland, but uh, her look actually did evolve a little bit. I'll touch on that in a couple of minutes here. Um, So the people who wanted a more modern Mary Marvel won out in the end. But uh, those who were arguing that uh, her power set should be updated so that she didn't have things like beauty and grace in there, um, that, that issue was never really revisited. But there were those people in the early going here who thought that it should have been. On to Shazam number nine. Uh, another Mr. Mind story. It's called Worms of the World Unite, mm-hmm. in which Mr. Mind gathers up a whole army of worms to a uh, – he's built – he hires a mad scientist who builds a hate amplifier for him, which uh, turns uh, like wickedness and hatred into energy blasts. Uh, but Mr. Mind alone was too small to use the helmet, so he had to call a big crowd of worms to get into this helmet thing so they could use it to zap Captain Marvel and – even with millions of worms adding the force of their invertebrate hatred to his, it, it's still not strong enough to take down the, the world's mightiest mortal. And there are two backup stories. Um, actually, uh, to, to this point, uh, there had been one Golden Age reprint per issue. But for a while here, after the 100-page Super Spectacular of number 8, which featured a bunch of important Golden Age reprints, um, we, we don't have reprints in the monthly issues of Shazam anymore. We have three new stories per, per issue. Uh, so there's a backup story uh, uh, written by Magan, uh, which uh, – oh, wait a minute. Actually, that might have been written by O'Neill. Well, anyway, um, it involves Billy Batson at Station Wiz. Um, he's uh, filming uh, a, a TV show there, uh, co-starring with uh, a young girl named Trixie and her pet chimp, Bonzo. <laughs> he's wearing a turban, which has a giant prop jewel in it, which unbeknownst to anyone has – magic properties so that whenever when billy says shazam um the magic lightning bolt ricochets off the gem and strikes everybody else in the room except him so mr morris gets shazam powers trixie gets shazam powers the chimp gets shazam powers (laughs) and the rest of the story is just cap trying to track down this chimp and uh, revert it to its normal non-powered state the title of the story is aptly enough uh, captain marvel goes ape Of course. <laughs> Another hallowed addition to the ape canon. <laughs> yes, because apes sell comics. I noticed Dave Co- Cockrum had early work on this. Yes, yes. Um, uh, yeah, that, that was uh, the other backup story in this issue. Um, oh, it turns out that uh, both the backup stories in this issue were written by Elliot S. Magan. Uh, the one featuring Captain Marvel Jr. was called uh, The Mystery of the Missing Newsstand. It was written by Magan with art by uh, uh, a fairly young Dave Cockrum. Uh, who was a fan of Captain Marvel back in the day. I mentioned that uh, he provided uh, well, early fan art of his of Captain Marvel was used as the cover to back issue magazine number 93. Um, and he would have loved to do more Captain Marvel Jr. stories for DC. Cap Jr. was and, and well, well, more specifically Macra Boy, you know, the, the artist who drew uh, a lot yes. of Captain Marvel Jr. stories was a big influence on a lot of later professional comics artists. So Cockrum was delighted to draw this story of Cap Jr. and would have liked to draw more, but then the X-Men gig came up at Marvel, and so he found himself suddenly uh, indisposed. And the rest was history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, Macra, is it Mac or Macra Boy? Uh, it's, I'm pretty sure Mac. I mean, his name was... Okay. Uh, Emmanuel or Emmanuel or something like that, but Mac was just a, his American yeah. nickname. So those, I'm listeners sure in, those listeners interested in comic history, uh, the name Murr just mentioned is, is a, a towering figure uh, when it comes to uh, the Fawcett characters, and he did other work as well outside of Fawcett. But I mean, the like the covers he would paint. I mean, his style was incredible. Um, a very talented man. 
there's been various books about his career that have come out uh, in recent years, but a very important figure that I need to learn more about. Un- un- unrelated, but every time Mr. Mind comes up, uh, one of these days I'm going to have to like tweet at They Might Be Giants and ask them if Mr. Mind was the inspiration for the song Dr. Worm. <laughs> one of my favorite they might be giant songs and it, it, it the, the two just equate in my head uh, uh wonderfully i can't help thinking of mr mime especially after <laughs> have you seen detective pikachu recently uh best scene in the movie <laughs> yeah, I, I i may agree <laughs> all right so anyway that's that, that thing with maggot and cockrum was the first captain marvel jr solo story of the 70s all right, and moving on to Shazam number 10. Uh, now, that contains the first uh, Mary Marvel solo story of the 70s. Uh, that was drawn by uh, Bob Oxner, who is uh, joining the Shazam creators. Murd, may, may I interject for a moment? Because I have to have this moment. May I? Okay, go ahead. Invasion of the Salad Men. Okay, <sighs> thank you. Yes. All right, well, we'll, we'll backtrack to that in a second. That's, <laughs> that, that, that is an important topic. <laughs> Silly as it sounds, it, it actually is important. Um, but yeah, so the, the, the first Mary Marvel solo story, um, it was drawn by Bob Oxner. This is his first uh, Shazam art. Uh, well, uh, it, it's one of two stories he had to draw in this issue, as it turns out. Get back to that in a second. But uh, he drew uh, the Mary Marvel story in a, a style that, that was more his own. Um, it was a Thanksgiving-themed story. And uh, it, it featured Cap- Mary Marvel trying to stop some bad guys who were trying to commit a robbery on Thanksgiving. It was written by E. Nelson Bridwell. And Oxner was more comfortable drawing Mary in, in a style that was less a swipe of C.C. Beck and more his own stuff. And he did update Mary's look a little bit. When she first appeared back in the 40s, she was modeled on Judy Garland. Um, uh, but Oxner thought it took more of a Nancy Drew approach. Um, I, I could also compare her to actress Susan Day of the Partridge family. Oh. Just uh, just her the, the hairstyle she was sporting and uh, you know the cut of her dress. So there was that. Um, but yeah, getting back then to uh, Invasion of the Salad Men. <laughs> yes, and th- thank you for the, uh, the wonderfully intoned reading of that title. Oh, Chris. I live for that, my friend. Yes, this is a story that was written by Elliot S. Magan, and it is a somewhat silly one. Um, it's it, as the title implies. It's a bunch of uh, alien beings who happen to resemble salad vegetables. And uh, their, their, their spacecraft crashes on Earth, and uh, they very politely uh, ask some passers-by where they might acquire some replacement parts for their craft, and everyone automatically assumes that they're here to invade them, since I guess that's happened a lot on Earth as over the years. Uh, but they respond very irrationally to these uh, very well-mannered little humanoid vegetables. Everybody but Captain Marvel, who, with his wisdom of Solomon, quickly determines that they're no threat to anybody. So in the end, he has to give the people what they're expecting, and uh, he, he leans into this whole idea of an invasion of the salad men, and uh, he and the uh, vegetable aliens make a movie together, which they then sell to some Hollywood producer and release to a limited number of theaters, and make enough money from doing this that the salad men can afford replacement parts for their spaceship and return to their home planet. That's what the invasion of the salad men is all about. <laughs> It is awfully silly. I really don't think that that silliness is that incompatible with the similar silliness encountered in the whimsical days of the Golden Age with the old uh, Captain Marvel stories back then. But uh, one person who definitely disagrees with that perspective is C.C. Beck, because this was kind of the the end of the rope of, of, of Beck's rope here. Um this this Salad Men story and another one that we'll see in the following issue, Shazam, Shazam number 11. Uh, Beck 
refused to draw it. And that's just not something that an artist for hire did. I mean, even today, it's kind of hard for an artist to get away with that kind of arrogance and uh, still be employed. But sure enough, that is what Beck did. And not only did he refuse to draw it, he didn't just mail the script back. He, he, he took the two scripts he refused to draw. He, he deemed them unusable. I think he might actually have written that on the scripts when he, huh. he returned them. He returned them in person, and not even to Julie Schwartz or, or, or Nelson Ridwell, his editors, but to uh, DC Vice President Saul Harrison oh, when boy. he saw him in person at a convention in New York. He, he, he must have had not many uh, bridges left standing by the end of his career. Yeah, I, he, he had. I don't think he really wanted that much to be working in comics anymore at that point. So he was just kind of uh, letting himself out. But yeah, he refused to draw the Invasion of the Salad Men story. So that was technically the first Shazam story that Bob Oxner drew. And uh, he was asked by uh, the editors to imitate Beck's style as closely as he could. And he doesn't do a bad job of it either. Yeah, Boxner is kind of a well-known member of DC's stable from the 60s and 70s, too. He's known for his rendering of attractive women, so it's uh, kind, of, kind of fitting that he's also handling the Mary Marvel stories. And uh, Oxner also drew the cover to Shazam number 10. Now, this is the first issue that ran without a C.C. Beck cover. Now, there is one C.C. Beck-drawn story in Shazam number 10, and that features the return of a Golden Age villainous Aunt Minerva, the elderly crime lord, elderly and man-hungry. So it's another you know, kind of in the vein of uh, Fat Man, the human flying saucer. This is a kind of uh, humor that's uh, probably not that acceptable in the modern day. But yes, Aunt Minerva is at her uh, geriatric and lusty best here in the final Captain Marvel story that Beck drew for DC. Let me reassure you for a moment. After what I saw earlier, Fat Man the Flying Human Saucer is always going to be acceptable to me. (laughs) (laughs) Happy to hear it, Chris, because those few issues are kind of on my long-term shopping list uh, for for, for convention shopping. And and to quote The Simpsons, as I always love to do, you don't win friends with salad. (laughs) (laughs) I've never seen anyone do that. It's true. Uh, yeah, they sure as heck didn't win C.C. Beck's friendship with Salad. No, they did not. All right, and that moves us along to Shazam number 11, which is the first issue of the series that uh, went on without any input from C.C. Beck at all. So uh, in this story, we have uh, – in this issue, we have the world's mightiest dessert, which features <laughs> wacky inventor and uh, – <laughs> Yeah, I have to save some surprises for you guys. I didn't mention this one in the outline. <laughs> I'm yeah. glad you did. This involves a uh, wacky scientist and part-time pharmacist, uh, Doc Quartz. You know, he runs uh, a drugstore, which is, you know, it's, it's a classic uh, like Woolworth-style drugstore, which is also like a soda shop. Uh, he invents a form of cherry gelatin that just uh, reproduces itself infinitely. And so Captain Marvel and all the good citizens of the city have to eat it in order to defeat it. So this is like a, a version of the blob in a sense. Yeah, 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 except uh, it, it doesn't try to eat anybody. Everybody just has to eat it. And then there's also a Christmas story in this issue, The Year Without a Christmas, in which the uh-huh, Savannah Bert. family schemes to uh, accelerate time so that Christmas passes in the blink of an eye. Yes, that, that it does hit close to home for me. It's true. But fear not, goodness prevails in the end, and the Marvel family helps Santa Claus defeat Savannah and his nefarious device. And the middle story, and this is important for a couple of reasons, uh, it's called The Incredible Cape Man. And uh, the titular Cape Man is actually a mild-mannered mailman named Herschel Dockles. 
And, you know, playing into uh, mid-70s uh, attitudes and stereotypes about life in the big city. And you, you know all about that, Ian. You know, the, the uh, urban fear. Hey, I'm walking here. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Just just fear of, of the crime rates and urban blight and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, Herschel Dockles is afraid to make his daily rounds in the city. So he uh, mail-orders a costume, which is basically a Superman costume with a C instead of an S and... Uh, like a striped balaclava ski mask to go with it. And he hits the streets as the incredible cape man because he thinks this costume is going to give him heightened confidence or something. And uh, Captain Marvel ends up having to you know, save him from some criminals that he foolishly tries to apprehend. Uh, so th- this story is important because, A, it's the other script that uh, C.C. Beck returned as unusable, and B, because it's the first Captain Marvel script of the 70s to be penciled by the aforementioned Kurt Schaffenberger, mm. finally returning to the Marvel fold and uh, penciling his first Captain Marvel story in a couple of decades. And uh, Mr. Schaffenberger would uh, make his presence very strongly felt for the rest of this run and beyond. All right, now we're going to take a little uh, uh, sidestep here from the Shazam series and talk about a Shazam-related issue that came out at about this point in the sequence, uh, around the time Shazam number 11 was on stands, and that's the Superman series, uh, number 276, cover dated June 1974. The story you thought we'd never dare print. How how very daring of them. Yeah, that's what it says on the front cover. Uh, The story you thought we'd never dare print, the fight to decide the superhero championship of the world. And the cover image has been often aped, imitated, homaged, you know, take your pick of verb. But it it shows Superman and a figure in a red and yellow costume, very much like Captain Marvel's, but not quite, speeding towards each other in midair, heading towards a collision. And so it's kind of promising something like a Superman-Captain Marvel Battle. Yeah, I can so, picture this cover. I, you know, I, I kind of, I guess, I always just assumed it was Captain Marvel, but as you note here, it, it actually isn't. Yeah, if you look carefully, the thing that it's kind of like one of those uh, try and find puzzles. You know, what, can you spot the nineteen mistakes in this image? <laughs> uh, the most noticeable one is uh, that uh, this uh, Captain Marvel knockoff uh, has kind of a big yellow starburst on his chest instead of a lightning bolt. That's right. Yep. But and, literally okay. everything else is almost exactly the same, even down to the cape. Yeah, but he, here's what I don't understand, Mert. So you note here that – so it's 1974. They've been publishing mm-hmm. the book now for over a year, and they still don't have full usage rights. I don't – like can you clarify – like elaborate? Like, what does that even mean? Um, they were not – they hadn't yet gotten clearance to have Captain Marvel a licensed character at that point. DC didn't yet own him outright. Okay. Um, they, they didn't yet have clearance to use Captain Marvel in the same comic with uh, their own characters. Oh, okay. Or at least uh, certain characters. Superman, for example. Any character that uh, carried its own trademark and started in its own comic. Eventually, we will see Captain Marvel appearing uh, in the same comic with one of Superman's enemies. But Superman himself had not yet uh, been legally cleared. Got it. So that's why uh, Elliot S. Magan who was the writer of this story, came up uh, with uh, this uh, uh, Captain Marvel doppelganger uh, to fight Superman in this issue. Uh, The creative team here is Magan, plus penciler Kurt Swan, plus inker Bob Oxner, plus editor Julie Schwartz. So everybody but Swan was already involved with Captain Marvel's 70s adventures anyway. 
So uh, the story is entitled uh, Make Way for Captain Thunder, which is kind of a callback to the cover blurb on Captain Marvel's first appearance in Wiz Comics number two, Gangway for Captain, Captain Marvel. And Captain Thunder, we must remember, was actually one of the original working names for the, the character that eventually became called Captain Marvel. Cap- Captain Thunder was like his prototype name. So there is a certain history involved there. Mm. So in this story, Captain Thunder blunders into Earth-1 from whatever parallel Earth he comes from. Elliot Magan retells his origin, which, as I note here in my outline, is kind of like what I imagine Captain Marvel's origin might have been if it had been written in 1954. Like if the Captain Marvel character had begun where his stories ended. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it, it's modified in such a way that it, it, it's sort of more in keeping with uh, the storytelling of that uh, that decade. Like, for example, there was no you – know, the old Shazam is not involved here. Captain Thunder gets his powers from an old uh, American Indian medicine man. So it's more like something that might have come out of, like, the, the, the popular Western comics of the day. And uh, his magic word is, of course, Thunder, and it's an acronym for a bunch of powers that I'm not going to bother to list here but in, in the interest of time. Uh, and he rubs his magic belt buckle, which has a little lightning bolt insignia on it. Um, Captain Thunder's real name is young orphan Willie Fawcett. Uh, he works at Wham! TV instead of Wiz. Uh, and uh, instead of Holy Moly, his catchphrase is Creepies. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> Fun little touches that Megan threw in there. Jiminy Jillikers. <laughs> that word has become entirely meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he, he uses creepies almost, almost almost often enough in this comic to become meaningless, too. Mm. He hits that pretty hard. So anyway, the, the shtick here is uh, he, he ends up in Superman's universe because he went up against a group of bad guys called the Monster League of Evil. Not the Monster Society of Evil, but the Monster League. And they look like uh, just like universal monsters, Frankenstein and Dracula and so forth. And they put some kind of magic spell on him that uh, will turn him evil every time uh, he calls on his uh, Captain Thunder identity. So that's what he does. On arrival on Earth-1, he finds Superman fighting some crooks, becomes Captain Thunder, and immediately finds himself compelled to help the crooks instead of capture them. And that's how he and Superman find themselves locked in combat. The battle ends in something of a stalemate. Superman pins Captain Thunder's arms behind him and just holds him still until finally whatever wisdom powers Captain Thunder has prevails, and he's able to overcome the magic brainwashing he's under and uh, he uses his powers to somehow get himself back home to his native universe. And do we ever see Captain Thunder again? Um, I'm glad you asked that, Chris. I, I kind of wish we had, because this is one of my favorite stories of the 70s. It's one of my favorite Superman stories, and it, it is just a favorite of mine, period. Um, but apparently, another thing I hadn't known until I started doing research for this episode, uh, Elliot Magan actually planned to do a sequel of sorts to this, um, to run in Action Comics number 576, like uh, 11 years later, it was going to come out around the time of Crisis on Infinite Earths, hmm. and it would reintroduce us to uh, Willie Fawcett and his alter ego, who by that time would have been promoted to Colonel Lightning. Huh. Changed his name for some reason. Uh, yeah, there, There's a feature about this in, I think, Back Issue Magazine number 10. Because back then they were doing a feature called uh, The Greatest Stories Never Told. About uh, comic scripts that never. Right, I remember that one. Yeah, we have to reiterate to, to listeners how like the spotlights Murd does or I do. You can't do them without tomorrows. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, the wealth of information they provide in their their one shot books and their monthly publications are it's just it, it has no peer. And, absolute so. argosy of background information. Yeah. 
And, and and Chris, the name Captain Thunder did reappear, if not William Fawcett himself. Uh, that was the name of the combined character that uh, that the different uh, Marvel family characters would become in the Flashpoint universe. Uh, when 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 they would okay. when they would scream Shazam, they would turn into Captain Thunder. Ian. All right, gentlemen. Unfortunately, that note, I have to depart because uh, I have to actually go to bed soon because. The final grinding month of school beckons me. No problem. Um, we understand perfectly, Chris. Murd, this is tremendous. Uh, I encourage everybody to, to keep your seatbelt on because there's so much great stuff ahead, like Gregory <laughs> Gosharudi. <laughs> the world's dullest mortal. I mean, Murd, I, I got to give you props, man. The research here is just, it's just one gem after another. Oh. Oh, These thank are you, Chris. Once immensely again, you, entertaining notes. You gave me a great example to follow. Honored. All right, brothers, I will. Uh, Leave this in your capable hands, and we'll uh, all talk soon. All right. Take all care, right. sir. Good night, gentlemen. Take care. Bye, Chris. Bye. Good night. Bye. Now, now before we get off this issue, uh, Murray, I'd love to find out someday, because I guarantee you that they're, somewhere along the lines in this story, they must have thought they had the full rights to Captain Marvel, because I don't, I don't understand why this story would exist outside of that. You would think that they would have just straight up waited a couple of months until until they 100% knew that they were able to use the character and just, you know, rather than create this whole new version of Captain Marvel when they themselves were literally printing Captain Marvel comics on a monthly basis. It's it's a very strange case. <laughs> it, it, it is, and I, I can't claim to know the full details behind it or, yeah. or behind the editorial thinking. Right. But— it, it does. I don't think this is something that they had just written up and then plugged in this new character mm-hmm. in the middle of it. I, I think it was written from the ground up with the idea that they were going to use this Captain Marvel doppelganger instead. Got it. Because uh, uh, it, it's a fairly well thought out origin sequence. Yeah. It, 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 it's clearly playing off uh, you know, nostalgia for Captain Marvel and his own history. Uh, but it just for whatever reason, uh, at this point, uh, DC did not yet have the ability to draw on that history itself just to. Uh, We'll pay tribute to it. <laughs> fair Ooh. enough. Fair enough. All right. So let's dive back in here. So that that was the first of several uh, Superman and Captain Marvel teases we would get until finally in 1978, we got the full on slobber knocker that we were all hoping for. <laughs> all right. Getting back into the Shazam series proper. Uh, issue number 12. Now, with that issue, uh, the series became it, – it had been bi-monthly pretty much this whole time, but uh, uh, it uh, went to a bi-monthly 100-page format. So every issue uh, for a little while here, uh, starting at number 12, was 100 pages with at least 20 pages of new content per bi-monthly issue uh, plus a bunch of Golden Age reprints and uh, other little surprises thrown in mostly by E. Nelson Ridwell, uh, profile pages, fact sheets, etc., usually assembled around a central theme for each issue. So our first time out here at number 12 – um, now, the only really noteworthy thing I have here as far as content for issue number 12 is that it had another Captain Marvel Jr. solo story uh, written by Megan with uh, art by Dick Giordano. Another nice. noteworthy who probably you know, had uh, 
wanted to pay his own tribute to Macro Boy by uh, drawing Captain Marvel Jr. <laughs> and uh, that story introduces us uh, to, uh, for the one and only time, the aforementioned Gregory Gasharudi, the world's dullest mortal that so intrigued Chris. And Gregory Gasharudi is uh, kind of on the order of Sonny Sparkle. He's just uh, a kid with a borderline superhuman attribute. Uh, you know, whereas Sonny is so nice, everyone wants to give him stuff. Gregory is just so dull and dull-witted and unexceptional <laughs> that uh, uh, nobody notices him even when they're standing right next to him. So he's he's kind of got functional invisibility going for him. And in this story, a group of crooks try to put that to work for them um, by using him to uh, steal some secret document or other for them. And uh, But Captain Marvel Jr., with the wisdom of Solomon, is able to perceive Gregory for what he is. And Gregory doesn't mean any harm. He's just happy that these criminals are willing to talk to him since so few people bother. So that's, uh, that's our fun little uh, Captain Marvel Jr. back up there. Uh, I think that's about the only Giordano art we got in this series. Well, I, I want to point out, too, that uh, this 100 pages of content was only 60 cents. <laughs> it was a different time. Yes, it was. Very much so. All right, let's see here. Uh, then let's see, um, okay, skipping over number 13, uh, yeah, in, uh, Shazam number 14, now this, uh, in, instead of giving us two or three news stories, it was just one long, like, 20-page thriller, uh, the Marvel family, now this is, uh, Cap, Mary, and Junior together, uh, even Uncle Marvel thrown in there for good measure, versus the reformed Monster Society of Evil, making their first of a couple, uh, uh, reincarnations of themselves um, here in the in the Bronze Age. Uh, Mr. Mind, of course, was at the center of this. Uh, it was basically Mr. Mind plus uh, Dr. Savannah and his two evil children plus Ibak the Cursed. And there's some fun background stuff happening with Ibak uh, flirting with Georgia Savannah. The two of them are kind of made for each other. Um, so uh, Mr. Mind has put together this uh, giant death ray projector thing, and uh, the Monster Society uh, takes it out on the street uh, to try to use it against uh, the unsuspecting populace. Uh, the Marvel family uh, scuttles that scheme almost immediately, but uh, Savannah himself is the only member of the society to escape, and he takes Uncle Marvel hostage. Uh, he heads back to Mr. Mind's hideout, where he discovers a little scale model, uh, like a miniature model of the death ray machine, which had the unexpected ability to materialize dream images from a, a person's mind. It accidentally uh, hooks itself up to Uncle Marvel when he falls asleep there in the hideout, and it brings to life these horrible mythological creatures that uh, Uncle has been dreaming about uh, with Savannah's head. He's been reading, Uncle Marvel's been reading a book about mythology, and he's also got Savannah on the brain because he's just kidnapped him. So this machine brings to life these nightmares Uncle Marvel is having of mythological beasts with Savannah's head on them. And these things then go on the rampage, and because they're dreams made flesh, they're not entirely real, therefore the Marvel family can't quite touch them enough to punch them, but they can do some real property damage. So the Marvel family have to use their heads to, to, to solve this problem. What they do is they uh, pretend to surrender to Savannah, sneak into the hideout, and uh, then they slip Uncle Marvel a book about the Marvel family, so that he reads that and falls asleep, and materializes dream versions of the Marvel family that can then beat up the, the Savannah-headed monsters and save the day. So it, it, it's a, if you're an Uncle Marvel fan, this, this story's got the goods. Clearly, this is where the concept for, for Inception came from. It was this comic. <laughs> With, oh, without a doubt, yeah. Just uh, <laughs> images of the whiz radio building just folding in on itself, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we finally get to see Uncle Marvel, or at least a dream avatar of him, with superpowers flying into the fray. So yeah. it's a proud moment for that character anyway. Oh. And it's also kind of the return of the Monster Society, so it's, it's, it's important for that reason, at least. Only in his dreams. Only in his dreams. <laughs> as real as they may seem, it was only in his dreams. <laughs> and the next, the next issue's a big one, huh? It is, yeah. Yeah, this is uh, the 100-page uh, uh, Shazam number 15. And we mentioned earlier, this is the first one to have uh, the world's mightiest mortal on the cover, as opposed to the original Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. Marvel Comics finally had their way there. But yeah, this is the first uh, interaction between uh, Captain Marvel and his friends and foes on their parallel Earth, which I might add has not yet been named so far in, in the Shazam series. Um it's not really been fully established at this point that uh, there's any possibility of Captain Marvel and friends interacting with other DC characters. You know, it's it's, but this is the first issue that uh, at least takes a step in the direction of grounding uh, Captain Marvel and and uh, his world in the DC multiverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, we finally get to see him interact with another DC character, that being Lex Luthor. Now Luthor has uh, worked up a, a, a doohickey called a magical accumulator. Um, his plan is to use his science. Uh, to gather ambient magical energy that he can then use against Superman, since it's one of Superman's few weaknesses that Luthor has not yet tried to exploit. Uh, so uh, he works, he, he uses this handheld gimmick he calls his magic accumulator. Uh, to, he, he decides he's going to use it to destroy a silly comic book one of his henchmen has left lying around, which happens to be a Shazam comic book. So he zaps the comic book with his accumulator, and it ends up shunting him into Captain Marvel's world which is not really described as a parallel Earth or anything like that. Uh, Luther wonders to himself, am I in another dimension? Or have I just been magically transported into this world of fiction by my own magic community? It's left kind of ambiguous. Because yeah. DC, even now, was not yet uh, ready to commit to the Marvels being a full part of their uh, publishing diegesis. Um, but anyway, for however, for, for what, for better or worse, um, Luthor is in Captain Marvel's world. He teams up with Mister Mind against Cap. They have this uh, scheme worked out where they trap Billy in a hammerhead shark tank at the local aquarium. But uh, Billy gets out of that as he always does, and uh, in the end, uh, Luthor is sent right back. Uh, I think by his own hand, actually, he's had enough of the the craziness that goes on on Earth S. But again, it's not called Earth S just yet. And uh, finds his way back to his home dimension where he says, bah, enough of that. Was that I hope that was all a dream. He pretty much convinces himself it was all a dream. But he still has his magic accumulator and he's planning to just try again. But on the final panel, there's a, kind of an image of uh, the corner of a cape and one red boot. <laughs> Superman, for, you know, for the reasons I cited before, I don't think Superman was allowed to appear inside the comic mm. but he is just like this tiny little partial cameo on the last panel to show that hey lex Luthor has been captured and all's well <laughs> uh, so there you go um also to be encountered in this issue um oh actually i'm sorry that this happened in number 14 ah. i missed it in my notes um but but e nelson bridwell began providing little profile pages on the different shazam elders you know he was kind of a walking encyclopedia of all kinds of world mythology ancient and modern you know, he, he knew a lot about ancient Greek myths, and he knew a lot about uh, Superman and Captain Marvel comics of the 40s. So he, he was just kind of a walking omnibus. And uh, he used that knowledge to uh, provide readers with some background on the six mythological gods and heroes on whom Captain Marvel calls for his powers. 
So it's like one page each for Solomon and then one for Hercules and so forth. So that, that's, that's a little added value thing that E. Nelson Bridwell threw into these 100-page issues of Shazam. I dig that. Yeah. Uh, text pieces uh, don't get as much love as they should in uh, in comic books, especially as uh, as you know additional content thrown mm. in there for the hell of it. Oh, I wholly agree. <laughs> you know, in the old days, it, even the publishers didn't take them seriously. They were just thrown in there to to qualify their magaz- their their comics as magazines, so they qualified for like a lower postal rate. Yep. But yeah, they, they have value of their own. I absolutely agree with you there. Oh yeah. And also in Shazam number 15, there was a two-page test spread for uh, something that Bridwell had been wanting to do for some time, a sequel to the classic Golden Age Tour of Cities, which was a series of Captain Marvel stories in which he would visit this or that American metropolis and see you know, local landmarks, interact with uh, local people, you know, people who were like newscasters or magazine distributors, just people that uh, Fawcett was trying to kiss up to, basically. Got uh, little cameos in those tourist city stories. And so uh, in a little two-page spread in Shazam number 15, uh, Bridwell floated to the readers the idea of doing this again, showing like little uh, excerpted panels from those classic stories of the 40s. And he would eventually get his wish, as we will see. Uh, Shazam number 16, I mentioned that each of these 100-page spectaculars had a central theme. Uh, Number 16 was The Deadly Enemies of Man. There were a couple of – like each story – I think there were seven stories in that issue, and each one was kind of introduced by a different deadly enemy of man. And uh, the, the lead-in story was a new one um, hosted by Injustice. <laughs> and then we come to the end of the this little run of 100-page spectaculars with number 17. Now, this is one that I – I kind of wish you'd been able to see, Ian, because uh, it introduces, as you see in my outline here, it introduces a character called Allegro Scruff, Mm -hmm. who is uh, the pied unpiper of crime. Uh, He's not a criminal himself, just the opposite, in fact. He's just a good-natured, easygoing dude who uh, walks around wearing sandals and bell-bottom jeans, and he he carries this miniature Moog synthesizer that plays magic notes that allow him to attract criminals and make them dance to his tune. So as a, a public service, he he actually rounds up all the criminals around the sleepy suburban town of Greenville. And uh, Captain Marvel personally congratulates him for doing this and then takes off. But then Allegro Scruff is told by the local police chief that uh, they can't quite deliver on the million dollars they promised him for doing this. The best they can do is $28 and a free ticket to the policeman's ball. <laughs> uh, and, sure, why not? <laughs> yeah, Scruff is not happy about that, so he kind of retaliates by using his uh, magical machine to uh, summon alien super criminals uh, to the planet Earth, uh, who uh, set about stealing, uh, respectively, smog, chocolate, and the color green. <laughs> this is... <laughs> that's That sounds like uh, the the brought to you by at the end of a Sesame Street episode. I mean, come on, <laughs> come on. That's, that's, that's so out there. <laughs> it seems like a story that would amuse somebody with the uh, substance consumption habits that somebody who dresses like Allegro Scruff might have. Yeah, that's 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 a good point as well. And it, I mean, really, they should have tried harder. They like they should have thrown in like a stick of gum or like uh, <laughs> or, or or you know like 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 some sort of uh, hemp belt or something like that. Mm, maybe some maybe Pringles, maybe. Yeah, exactly. You never know. <laughs> yeah, but well, the main well in the end. Uh, the Marvels and the alien criminals back where they came from. Um, but uh, one of the crim- – well, 
that they manage to re- arrange a bargain with one of the criminals who then gives the, the, these aliens that show up on Earth. Um, they're happy enough that they uh, make a bargain with the Marvel family and give them a million dollars worth of diamonds so that Allegro Scruff can finally get his million dollars. And his response was, oh, okay, that's cool. I hand the rocks to charity. I don't dig money, man. It's, the whole thing – it was not, it was never about the money with Allegro Scruff. It was about the recognition, the appreciation, you know? He felt slighted. That, that, that's what this was all about. So he just hands the bag of diamonds back to the Marvel family and goes off to start up a band. Damn hippie. <laughs> well, the, the reason I wanted uh, you to see this, though, Ian, is because yeah. if you ever get a chance to see this issue, check out the character design on Allegro Scruff okay. and tell me that he doesn't look exactly like a young, rusty venture in oh. his college years. Oh, boy. Okay. All right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm using the power of the internet right now. Let me, let me see if I can, uh, if I can get a, a solid image of him. Let's see. Allegro Scruff. <laughs> oh, you ain't kidding. <laughs> oh boy yeah wow i part of part of me part of me feels like now that's that may have been very well where they got the inspiration for rusty oh my god that's that's that is on the money yeah <laughs> i wouldn't put that past jackson public and uh, doc hammer you know their their influences are many diverse and obscure yeah it also kind of looks like a uh a, a uh an older shaggy well, yeah, kind of. Yeah. yeah. Letting his hair grow out even further. Right, exactly. Yeah, like like in, in a couple of years where he needs, uh, you know, corrective lenses and and has a little bit further of a beard, that would that would absolutely be what Shaggy looked like. All right. So that's fun. And uh, that uh, very Dr. Venture-like artwork is provided, of course, by Kurt Schaffenberger. Very nice. All right. So back to the more standard 32-page length. Um, in Shazam number 18, the lead story was the celebrated talking frog of Blackstone Forest, which is a uh, Mr. Tawny story. It's your classic uh, frog prince yarn. He meets a talking frog who claims to be an enchanted uh, prince, but nobody can – but he, within his social circle, can talk to animals. So Mr. Tawny is having a hard time convincing anyone of, of the, the truth of this. And for a B story, we've got uh, the first meetup between Captain Marvel Jr. and Sivana Jr. of the Bronze Age. Mm. Savannah Jr. uses a hypno coin to uh, place a post-hypnotic suggestion that keeps Freddie Freeman from saying the name of his hero, Captain Marvel, and transforming into Cap Jr. But uh, Cap Jr., well, Freddie gets around this by saying his own name, which happens to contain all the same syllables as Captain Marvel. And uh, so that, that's his loophole. He changes into Cap Jr. and beats uh, Savannah Jr. up. Good. That, that, so- that sounds like it shouldn't work. <laughs> That sounds logical. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, like Fred, Fred E. No, I, I, I don't, I don't know about that, man. <laughs> but all right, fine. Well, sure. no, when I, I mean, he says Captain. When I say his own name, I mean Captain Marvel Junior. Oh, uh, that contains okay. the name Captain Marvel within it. Got it. All right. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, because because I, I was trying to think like, wait, how do, how does that work? But but then that makes it even stupider because like, so he can't say Captain Marvel, but he can as long as there's a June. Ah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> It's fun. It's whimsy. Sure. Sure it is. Just turn off your brain a little bit and read some comics, damn it. <laughs> That's just what they're hoping the kitties would do yes. in those days. 
And that is the thing. I mean, they, they were going fairly explicitly for a younger audience. You know, Bob Oxner said as much in, a, in an interview some years later, yeah. uh, which is a funny thing because they were trying very self-consciously to trade on nostalgia for the Golden Age stories mm-hmm. and yet aiming themselves at an audience that was too young to feel nostalgia for those stories. <laughs> so kind of makes you wonder a little bit who this series was for. I mean, but it must have been for somebody because it sold fairly well. The first issue in particular sold many, many copies, although a lot of those were to speculator types, which did exist even back in the early 70s. Sure, yeah. Uh, and so it, it, it lasted a good uh, – you know, as a, a self-contained uh, solo title, it, it lasted a good five years and 30-some issues. So it's by, – by early 70s standards, it was something of a success. Yeah, not too shabby. So, as strange and uh, counterintuitive as the formula seemed to be, somebody was buying it. Yep. All right. Uh, in Shazam number 19, now uh, we're introduced to uh, a Mixius Pit... Mixius Pitlick-like... Jeez. That's how you know it's getting late, when I lose the ability to pronounce Mixius Pitlick. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he was an alien juvenile delinquent from another dimension, very much like Mixius Pitlick. His name was Zazo. And uh, he comes to Captain Marvel's Earth uh, for some fun, you know, pretty much the same reason Mixus Pitlick always bothers Superman. And uh, he wears he, – unlike Mixus Pitlick, he doesn't have reality-warping superpowers. He has no powers at all, just a few samples of his dimension's super science, including a special kind of hat. It looks like a, the old uh, Prussian helmet, the Pickelhaube. Uh, you, you've seen him. It's a helmet with a big metal spike coming right out of the middle of it. Yes. Yes, I have. Yes. Okay. He wears one of those. And it has the ability to uh, draw Billy's magic lightning into itself um, so that the first time Billy says Shazam while Zaza was around wearing this helmet, it siphons off his lightning, literally steals Billy's thunder, and it changes Zazo into a super-powered Captain Marvel-like entity calling itself Zazo Plus, uh, wearing like a reverse Flash version of uh, Captain Marvel's costume, you know, yellow suit with red lightning bolt. And he causes mischief and vandalism and all that stuff until, well, well, he, he takes off the helmet, first of all, so that uh, uh, Cap can't just say Shazam again and cause a second lightning bolt to change Zazo Plus back to normal Zazo. Instead, the lightning bolt goes down and changes Cap back into Billy, and then uh, Zazo Plus gags Billy so that he can't say the word again. And Well... Uh, Billy goes and seeks out Freddy, and uh, uh, using a second member of the Marvel family, he's able to find a way around this predicament. And uh, in the end, you know, this is when we get to that spanking I promised you earlier, Ian. Yeah. Because when when Zazo Plus is uh, reverted through Billy and Freddy's trickery back into his normal teenage self, that is when Cap comes and takes young Zazo over his knee. Very graphically. (laughs) And then Zazo's dad shows up and says, that's exactly the punishment I would prescribe, Captain Marvel. So you know, it's with oh, parental permission. So I guess in uh, the seventies, that's that's good enough. Zazo, uh, in 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 character uh, likeness, uh, kind of looks like a more childish Sinestro, like even even in his hairline. Oh yeah, he's got the pink skin and the pointed ears and a bit of a widow's peak going on. Yeah, yeah. It reminds just... me a little more of the the Wonder Twins from Super Friends, though. Yeah, I could I could see that as well. Yeah, definitely. He's got those. Weird little curly Q uh, sideburns happening. Yeah. But so there we are. The cap gets a little uh, mixes pitlick imp action. Uh, and then there's a Mary Marvel backup story. 
which introduces a new uh, status quo for everybody's uh, favorite roly-poly wannabe Marvel, Uncle Marvel. Uh, he actually goes somewhat legit and uh, gets his own kitty show on uh, Station Wiz TV. Uh, you know, the Uncle Marvel show. His name sounds like he ought to be a kitty show host anyway. Um, but uh, he is then blackmailed um, by a, a mysterious person. Uh, he says he set up a, a bomb in Station Wiz and he will detonate it and kill everyone inside unless Uncle Marvel helps him pull off a daring heist using Uncle Marvel's fantastic Shazam powers that he doesn't really have. So Uncle Marvel sends out an SOS to Mary Marvel, who uh, you know mimics all of the, she, she underwrites him basically and helps him creates the illusion that Uncle Marvel is uh, doing these superpowered feats to steal a painting for this mad bomber type. Uh, it's a painting called the Smiling Swordsman, and it turns out that the mad bomber loves the painting so much that he styled himself after the Smiling Swordsman in the painting and wears a fancy musketeer costume and fights with a sword and everything. He doesn't last uh, more than, like, five seconds against Mary Marvel, though, once <laughs> his his true nature has been revealed, but it's kind of like Mary and uncle Marvel versus like the earth S version of the Batman villain, the Cavalier. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So, but uh, yeah, uncle Marvel gets his own TV show and, uh, the, the, his connection with station Wiz will be played up a little more as, uh, the, the series uh, moves on into a new evolutionary stage. Uncle Marvel on TV. That's something that would never happen again. <laughs> <laughs> or would it? Hmm. <laughs> Okay, well, moving on now to uh, issue number 20, uh, which is uh, a full issue. I mean, it's an issue-length mystery story uh, involving Cap, Mary, and Junior together. Um, It was called The Strange and Terrible Disappearance of Maxwell's Zodiac, and it's kind of a peculiar little riddle-type story. And it's a riddle that was never really completely answered, and I think that was kind of a deliberate creative choice on the part of uh, writer Elliot S. Magan. Um, this was his uh, his final Shazam work, although he didn't know that at the time. Now, he was a freelancer on the book, um, and uh, he was kind of bummed out, actually, when uh, after the little hibernatory period that uh, the series was about to go into, as we'll see in a second, uh, he was never tapped again to write Shazam. He was disappointed because he said uh, he had a blast doing it. Mm. I'm kind of disappointed, too, because, as I've said, Megan is one of my favorite Bronze Age writers. So, But this is where Captain Marvel and Megan part company. And now we come into a place where, I guess, sales had dipped far enough that uh, Captain Marvel and company were about to climb back into the suspendium for a little bit. Because uh, for four issues, issues 21 through 24, um, Shazam was demoted to a quarterly reprint title. Yeah, it's just a 32-page comic of nothing but Golden Age reprints. For, it, it spent pretty much a year in limbo that way, four quarterly issues. So things looked pretty bleak for this uh, Bronze Age revival of Captain Marvel and his friends. But then, <laughs> charging in on a white stallion, and uh, I didn't even mention this in my notes, but uh, it was really Jeanette Kahn, more than anybody else, wow. that pulled uh, Captain Marvel's bacon out of the fire. Huh. See, this was all happening in that uh, magical year of 1976. And uh, Jeanette, that was the year that uh, National Periodical Publications officially became DC Comics, and it was the year that Jeanette Kahn uh, was brought in and made uh, the publisher of DC Comics. Wow. So she was kind of co-regent of the company uh, in a position of near equal power with uh, President Saul Harrison. And uh, she was the one who was really agitating for some proactive change at the company. And uh, she had a lot of, in hindsight, very good ideas. I mean, people who were working at DC at the time didn't all think so. 
Um, and she got a lot of pushback, uh, not for nothing, and probably not least because she happened to be a woman. And uh, also because she was a woman who had had no real prior experience working in comics. But still, I think history has borne out that a lot of the ideas that she had uh, for uh, revitalizing this stale old boys club that was uh, DC Comics uh, were proved to be good ideas. Mm. One of uh, the, the things that uh, she really uh, hit hard as, as a, a publisher of DC, one of her – uh, chief uh, uh, agenda items was that she disliked reprints. She th- thought they were a waste of page count and uh, didn't give the readers enough for their buck. So she did her best to eliminate reprint titles and uh, uh, reprint filler in monthly comics. And she also wanted to see DC do some more relevant things to the time and just some more like licensed tie-in type stuff and she saw this shazam series that was languishing in reprints something that as i've just said she didn't care for and she saw a real missed opportunity there because you know this was 1976 and the shazam tv show had been a saturday morning success for like two years now mm-hmm. and uh, she thought well by golly we ought to have a TV, a, a comic book that ties in a little more with this uh, Shazam TV show that prospective comic book buyers uh, might might uh, be familiar with, and it might make them more inclined to pick up a comic book uh, based on this Shazam concept if it were tied in more with the, the TV series. So uh, she really pushed for the Shazam series to be brought uh, out of its the stale, repetitive cycle of reprints and uh, brought back into relevance uh, as a DC TV comic. And that was a little uh, mini line that DC uh, launched in 1976. Uh, so Shazam uh, was revitalized as the one of those four. The other three being a comic based on uh, the Shazam TV series sister show, uh, Isis. Mm-hmm. And there was also the Super Friends comic. And uh, welcome back, Cutter. <laughs> <laughs> signed kind of the Epst- oddball of the group there signed Epstein's mother <laughs> oh 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 <laughs> Miss Khan Miss Khan <laughs> oh man now now I have the damn Barbarino song stuck in my head alright <laughs> oh I'm, I'm, I'm terribly sorry <laughs> uh, it, it'll get out soon enough I'll replace it with something once we're done here <laughs> right, let's let's move on quickly in that case. Yes. All right. So Shazam number 25, cover dated September, October 1976. Um, Shazam came out of reprint limbo, and uh, uh, that, that issue contained two different stories. Uh, the lead story, the cover story, is one of those few stories not reprinted in the Shazam showcase volume because it was it, it was really not so much a Shazam story as it was an Isis story with a brief Captain Marvel cameo. It was pretty much a backdoor pilot for the upcoming Isis series, which would last a whopping eight issues. Um, but it was written by Denny O'Neill, and this was actually the last uh, work that Denny O'Neill would do uh, for this series. He had kind of uh, quietly backed out of writing scripts for the monthly Shazam series some time ago. But he came back to write uh, this little Isis crossover story uh, to introduce readers to that character. Um, the, the artwork for that story was uh, provided by uh, – darn it. Ah, by Dick Giordano. Right there it is. There you go. Uh, yeah, and it really had a lot more to do with Isis and her supporting cast. Captain Mar- it, it, it starts with Isis uh, saving one of her students because her alter ego was uh, teacher Andrea Thomas. Uh, we get uh, like a page and a half uh, recap of uh, her origin in this story. Um, 
because Captain Marvel shows up. Isis has just – well, Andrea Thomas has just become Isis to save her student from a crumbling building at a demolition site. And uh, Captain Marvel arrives on the scene just a little too late to be of any help, and he said, well, gosh, I, I'd like to know a little more about you, Isis, and how you got your amazing powers. And that prompts Isis to just stand there and think to herself, well, this is my origin. Uh, which uh, involved her being on an archaeological dig in Egypt and finding a magic amulet and a handy little instruction manual scroll that tells her how to use it to become Isis. And uh, then Captain Marvel says, well, hope to be seeing more of you, Isis, and flies away. And that's pretty much the end of the Captain Marvel angle of that story. <laughs> and then Isis spun off into her own series, and it didn't last very long, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay, so that this, is, this issue was also the passing of the baton uh, editorially, because uh, the first uh, – that, that Isis story was edited by Julia Schwartz, but the second story of that issue, which is really much more relevant to Shazam, um, was edited by Joe Orlando, who would relieve uh, Julie Schwartz as editor of the Shazam series, and none too soon as far as Julie was concerned, because he would later describe his time as Shazam editor as a low light Oof. of his career. Jeez. And probably not just because he had to deal with C.C. Beck, but uh, <laughs> just to, I don't think he ever really warmed to the character and to the uh, kind of warm, fuzzy nostalgia approach that uh, was being taken to him. Yeah, it seems like the behind the scenes uh, uh, in general for this book was not exactly rosy. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of embattled on, on, on some levels, yeah. I guess you could say, but it, it was far from the only DC publication or comics publication in general to suffer such behind the scenes problems. Oh yeah. Bronze age was a turbulent time. And, and the other thing I'll point out is uh, it's just because of the timing of what, as this was happening, uh, you know, over, over at Marvel, a, a, a title, you know, went a couple a couple of years of doing nothing but reprints and then came back, uh, you know, strong and, you know, back and better than ever. And that was the X-Men. And now, mm-hmm. now here's Shazam, uh, you know, going from me a quarterly reprint title back to being a regular book uh, right mm-hmm. around the same time. So yep. there you just go. A- yeah, it was a time of uh, both hope and despair. Yep. Yeah, so that's a, a good, good parallel to draw there, Ian. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, no problem. All right. Uh, so then the back half of Shazam number 25 was a story called The Bicentennial Villain by E. Nelson Bridwell with art by Kurt Schaffenberger. And it was just uh, Billy um, recording a piece uh, for the Bicentennial um, with a focus on the, the role of young people in the American Revolution. And uh, Dr. Savannah, because he's wicked, decides to sabotage this. He hates everything remotely patriotic. Um, so, and, and it's in this story that uh, no doubt is left uh, in anyone's mind that uh, Billy Batson and Captain Marvel call New York City their home. It's, it's been kind of strongly hinted in the past, but uh, now it's, it's made pretty explicit, uh, the, the generic city that Billy and Captain Marvel have been living in. It, it's been New York all along. So that's uh, it, it's not Fawcett City, or at least it's not Fawcett City yet. Okay, it's it's, it's a, it gets a little strange later on, but it's kind of a last minute <laughs> revision uh, was was put into place to make it Fawcett City. But for now, it's definitely New York. All right, and uh, uh, so uh, the Captain Marvel thwarts Savannah, but he gets away and uh, threatens to try to do to the rest of the country, city by city, what he tried to begin in New York. So that, that that's kind of uh, the the. Uh, uh, the prologue for the uh, new uh, filmation TV show influence direction that the title will be taking. 
And now another little interlude for something uh, Captain Marvel related that was happening elsewhere in the DC line. And here's where I'm kind of sorry that Shane couldn't join us because uh, we're now going to be looking at a, an arc in the Justice League of America series. Mm-hmm. This is volume one, issues uh, 135 through 137, published in the fall of 1976. And this was the 14th annual team-up between the Justice League and the Justice Society, by then already a venerable DC annual tradition. And it marks the DC Comics debut of uh, multiple non-Marvel family heroes from the Fawcett character library. So we get the first DC appearance of characters like Ibis the Invincible and his wife Tab, his lovely wife Taya, uh, the Spy Smasher, uh, Bullet Man and Bullet Girl, and Mr. Scarlet and his sidekick Pinky. Uh, It's also the first DC appearance of the classic uh, late Golden Age uh, Captain Marvel villain King Cull the Beast Man. And also, just for good measure, this story marks the first time, finally, that uh, Captain Marvel's world is officially grounded and fully integrated into the DC multiverse under the name Earth-S. So, if you, I noticed this earlier today. If you look up uh, DC's Parallel Earths on Wikipedia and a, a number of other places uh, on the internet, uh, it, it'll tell you that the name Earth-S first appeared in Shazam number one. I've read that comic multiple times now within the past few weeks. It ain't there. Yeah. Okay. Earth S was first officially used in this story arc, which was brought to us by uh, well, it, it's it's a story by E. Nelson Bridwell again. The script was by uh, Martin Pasco, although uh, you know more behind the scenes drama. Pasco's script was very heavily rewritten by E. Nelson Bridwell mm-hmm. to the point of virtual unrecognizability, and that was to Martin Pasco's heavy resentment. And he he said that he considers that story an embarrassment, and to this day he has not reread it. Oof. And the pencils are provided by Dick Dillon as a part of his marathon run on uh, the, the Justice League of America title. He, he was the regular penciler for that book for a long time, and uh, not for many people mention it. But he got to draw a lot of uh, classic Fawcett characters in this story. Yeah, looking at the art, it's, uh, it, it's uh, pretty standard, uh, you know, like Silver Age-esque Bronze Age stuff. If that makes any sense, it's uh, oh sure, yeah, very, very, very much the what you would expect each character to look like on the boiler plate uh, is 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 the way mm. he drew the uh, the Justice League. Mm. Uh, just real style sheet type stuff. Exactly. Yep. Okay, so have you read this arc, Ian? Um, I ha- I haven't, but I'm flipping through it right now on a DC Universe app because it happens to be one of the uh, titles that's actually there. So, <laughs> yeah, how about that? Yeah, and uh, I mean, it, it makes sense. I think they have most of uh, the Justice League uh, series mm-hmm. on there uh, versus oh, yeah. uh, the Shazam stuff, but uh, you know, looking through it right now, I I love uh, you know, crossover titles and multiverse stuff in general. So I'm gonna add this to the list of stuff to read. Uh, and uh, amazing that this was uh, the 14th crossover already uh, between between the JLA and the JSA. And uh, when was the first one? How many years ago was that? Any idea? Oh, well, probably 1962. Yeah, so that's a uh, decent amount of uh, crossovers in a in a relatively short span. Mm. Well, like I said, they they made it uh, out of an annual family reunion between those two teams. Yep. And usually invited along a third party. And this time it just so happened to be. Uh, uh, the, the Fawcett heroes, collectively called in this story Shazam's Squadron of Justice. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the plot there, it's a really messy plot. I mean, if editorial tampering will out. 
in this case. And uh, King Cole was the main villain, and his deal is he just wants to eradicate humanity because they eradicated his race of beastmen. So he finds his way to the Rock of Eternity. He's, Despite being kind of a pre-human barbarian, he he has access to all kinds of super science because his race, despite their affinity for loincloths, they were big into uh, death rays and stuff. Um, so he finds his way to uh, the Farak of Eternity and holds all the elders cap- hostage there, except for the one he's not able to capture is Mercury because he's too fast for him. So it's Mercury who goes to uh, visit neighboring parallel Earths, uh, Earth 1 and Earth 2, and gathers together teams of heroes from Earth 1, Earth 2, and Earth S. And for some reason, they're dispatched to different Earths where uh, King Cull has this dispatched teams of villains from all three Earths to launch different schemes that King Cull has in mind for eradicating humanity in three different universes. It, it's not a very well-organized story. I mean, they, they, this, in fairness to me, this, the story itself is about as messy as my explanation is. <laughs> well, I mean, I do, I do see by the time we get to uh, issue 137, that's when we do finally get the, uh, the meeting between uh, you know, Superman and Captain Marvel that totally hasn't happened before, and uh, they're absolutely <laughs> meeting for the very first time. Yep. It's now it's the story we we thought they'd never dare print. Hey, exactly. Except it isn't because no fight actually takes place. Ah. Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah, so it it takes until the third part, you know, the, the the aforementioned number 137 when uh, uh, the the Marvel family themselves finally get involved. It's been all JLA, JSA and uh, non-Marvel family Fawcett people to this point. Um but uh, it, it 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 all comes to a head on the Rock of Eternity. Uh King Cole somehow has his, uh, some Earth 1 red kryptonite in his possession and he uses it to drive Superman violently insane so that uh, he and Captain Marvel are about to have a big uh, uh, head-on collision, but instead, uh, well, Captain Marvel just uh, uses the old trick of uh, saying his magic word at the last minute, and uh, the magic lightning, I guess, shocks Superman back to his senses. Oh, and this is after, I nearly forgot this part, a Johnny Thunder of the Justice Society, who is usually like the bumbling mascot of the team. He gets to play the hero here because he uh, gets to use his magic thunderbolt to simulate the Shazam lightning. Uh, the, the reason the Marvel family haven't been involved so far is because the Shazam elders have been paralyzed by King Cull. They can't send the magic lightning to turn the kids into the Marvel family. So Ma- Johnny Thunder's magic thunderbolt gets to play magic lightning bolt, and he's able to transform them and uh, bring them into the story. So there you go. That's uh, the the Marvel family and the Shazam, the Fawcett heroes' first big entry into the DC multiverse, and they would be officially a part of the sandbox from that point on. Very good to hear. Ah, mm. uh, I should something I forgot to mention earlier too. Uh, this is not the first time that E. Nelson Bridwell ticked off a creator with his uh, very heavy rewrites. He was <laughs> actually somewhat infamous for that, it seems. Oh boy. Uh, there's one anecdote about uh, C.C. Beck. Uh, apparently, sometime within a year after he walked off the Shazam series, um, Britwell actually reached out to him, offering him a, an opportunity to write a Shazam script, and then, if it passed editorial muster, uh, to draw it. And this is something that even back in the Golden Age, C.C. Peck did not very often do. Mm-hmm. There's only one issue of Wiz Comics I can think of that was both written and drawn by Beck. So Beck apparently was not... Uh, steamed enough to turn down an offer like that, so he actually did write a Captain Marvel script involving the seven deadly enemies of man, sent it in to the editorial offices, and like six months later, it finally came back to him 
edited so heavily that uh, Beck barely recognized it, and <laughs> he, of course, declined to draw it. Oh, at that boy. Point, so. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> That's the way the cookie crumbles. Shazam! Okay, guys, so remember how at the beginning of the episode, uh, Mr. Adam Murdo stated that we'd be able to get through this pretty quickly? Well, we recorded for four hours. <laughs> so we're going to go ahead and uh, cut this episode off here. And next episode, we'll have the rest of Captain Marvel in the Bronze Age. It's a great conversation all the way through. I love going back and forth with Mr. Murd, and uh, we wind up talking about plenty of great Bronze Age action. So do tune in next episode for the rest of it. I'm sure you're going to love it as much as you love this part. And you're going to love this part, too, as I play the end credits. The website for Comic Geek Speak is ComicGeekSpeak.com, where you can check out any back episodes of the show you so desire. Voicemail line is 267-702-6642. Stop by thecomicforums.vanillacommunity.com to discuss this or any other episode of the show. Twitter over at Comic Geek Speak and Facebook at facebook.com slash comicgeekspeak. We'd like to thank anybody who's donated to the show. We thank you very much and could not do it without you. And as always, we're uniting the world's mightiest heroes, one listener at a time. Shazam, damn it!